Leave me, I don't want to set the world on fire. I just want to start a flame in your heart. All right, guys. So it's the 29th of September, 2020. I've, um, I told you guys months ago that September 30th is the key day. And, uh, that is when things are really going down, I guess, because obviously months later, we find out that Comey will be talking tomorrow, flapping his lips as, uh, anticipated as stated. Um, we are, um, streaming General Flynn's hearing right now live. So while, uh, the show is going on, there may be an interruption because they come back online. So I've uh, left it on there and um, I'm going to keep it on so they can interrupt us so that we can listen to the rest. Now, for those of you that are on Periscope, I want you to know that Periscope censors um, scopes. <laughs> so if you are wanting to watch uh, DLive, Twitch and Facebook are live right now and the streams are solid. Periscope keeps dropping. I know I have the same problem when I'm looking for things to watch and when I'm watching things. Now, this morning, an extended trailer of Shadowgate 2 was dropped. I want to share that with you uh, right now and would love to hear, well, see your thoughts on it. So let's play that right now. And if you have any questions, I'll be monitoring the chat uh, so that way I can answer any if needed. So I gave most of this information to Millie Weaver and she put out a report. And even though I had legal access because I had my username and password, the minute she did that report, almost instantaneously, the website was taken down. They just uphauled the whole server. I don't want to set the world on fire. Who do you Take think control. is pulling Biden's strings? Uh, is it former Obama People officials? that you've never heard of. People that are in the dark shadows, people that... Oh, what does that mean? That sounds like conspiracy theory. Dark shadows. No, what does that people mean? that you haven't heard of. Standing by, a host will be when the first Shadowgate trailer was aired, a little-known anonymizer project... I, sorry, they said um, momentarily they'll be back on, so I guess after this trailer they'll be live again. ...called Ion 2 was scrapped. On the day of Shadowgate's release, a well-planned, targeted smear campaign by media outlets and social media influencers was launched to distract away from the subtle panic the military-industrial complex was going through in the background. While everyone was distracted by my bizarre arrest and the mainstream media's hit pieces on the whistleblowers and myself, People didn't notice that the military-industrial complex themselves started pulling pages off their websites in a mad panic. The movie was actually about, you know, Dynology, Jones Group International. These people are pulling their websites down. You got the military-industrial complex shutting down for a day. It was like amazing you know everybody's pulling their websites and stuff the web pages of dynology jones group international clearforce were removed modified and changed in what appears to be a cover-up 
The day the trailer for Shadowgate 2.0 was launched, where Patrick revealed he was blowing the whistle on Leone, a military-industrial complex psyops contractor, then Leone subsequently pulled pages from their website. I resigned in disgust, having me secure a classified network with a Linksys home Wi-Fi. And I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to do it. The owners owed like $4 million in back taxes. It was an article by USA Today that exposed that resulted in Camille Shidiak attacking those journalists. And I would add a third-party investigation. Again, thank you for your patience. I hope you be able to join your conference momentarily. Thank you for your patience. Please continue to hold. So someone said that it started. That was probably back chatter on another channel. Um, oops. And instead of pressing pause, I went back. So let me just start it over there again. Uh, you heard the guy say that it's starting momentarily. Well, by USA Today that exposed that resulted in Camille Shidiak attacking those journalists. And I would add a third party investigation also determined they used highly advanced uh, anonymity like you would get through anonymizer then turned into intrepid. But why? What was so dangerous about Shadowgate and our whistleblowers that the documentary created such commotion and chaos? Leone misappropriated contract funds mm -hmm. doesn't go toward secure routers and systems that would protect the safety of American troops right after you left and decided I'm out, I'm not doing this. These were some of the highest mortality death rates. How likely is it that troops died because of this misappropriation of funds? I can do you one better. How likely is it that when we left Iraq, and General James Jones, retired four-star general, took the capabilities we had developed, which ended up becoming ShadowNet, made commercially available. How many people actually died? How many of our troops died? But I would argue even more, would ISIS have taken over after we left? The documentary created such commotion and chaos. It's been the most confusing release or premiere of any movie, I think, in the history of mankind. Which resulted in YouTube, Facebook, and other social media platforms banning it entirely off of their platforms. YouTube banned it, saying it was hate speech. Facebook banned it. Hate speech? What is that? Shadowgate was about the deep state, so I guess it's hate speech if you are exposing the deep state. We've offended the military-industrial complex. They're, they're a person now, so yeah. you can't do that. That is the subject matter for this documentary. So, guys, um, Shadowgate 2 uh, is going to blow things up in the respects of you guys seeing just how they censored what we told them. Shadowgate 3, okay, is going to be about General Flynn. It's going to be about these generals because <laughs> that's what it was all about. When people say he knows where the bodies are buried, right, it's because he knew what they did. He knew exactly what they did. I was there when he was retired. Okay. When he was retired dead, when they forced him to retire, 
And uh, there's a little bit of unmasking of me uh, in Shadowgate 3, which is a little bit dangerous, but I'm okay. I'm okay. What are they going to do? Say that um, I'm just going to leave it at that. But Shadowgate 2 is demonstrating to you uh, just how panicked they were. See, everyone was focusing on the smear campaigns from not credible. Here we go. I heard ticking. Not credible individuals. Um, because the mainstream media didn't really touch it. Right? They're not going to do that. But when you see, when you see, hmm, you're going to be like, wow. Because the whole world has been living in a trance global mainstream media, all hacks. So yesterday I put up an article about how the U.S. Uh, said that they are supporting Greece. Now, I told you guys the war is going to break there. I told you that in 2018 when it started. I told you that we're moving our troops to Greece. Nobody, you know, nobody was reporting on it. We signed a new mutual defense agreement. You know what that is, right? A mutual defense agreement means if a country goes to war, you go to war with them. Kind of like what we're seeing in Syria with Russia. Russia is defending Syria. And what people need uh, to understand is that um, uh, <sighs> Turkey has been provoking the north, the west, and the south of their borders North and South provoking Russia, obviously. And now they move to the East. Now, we're going to see that. We're going to see what's going on. Uh, very, very nice um, statement right there uh, that they won't touch Chattergate. They won't. <laughs> you know that um, Patrick Berge was part of the team Tip of the spear, right? Everything, everything can be. I'm going to stop there. I'm not going to say it. Uh, so, the military industrial complex is on the run. They are terrified. President Trump has already started pulling contracts. He knows, I know, you know, we all know. Apparently, someone says, Azerbaijan and Armenia. Do you know why they're fighting? So Armenia, which was a victim of genocide by Turkey, is being attacked by Turkey because Turkey is supporting Azerbaijan. Well, we've been talking about this for years. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to say much on that. It's really, really, uh, I, I just want to say that the situation uh, that we have is an infodemic from the beginning of time. It has all been about hijacking people's realities. And we use those tools against our enemies so we can make them do what we want them to do. In 2012, we were kicked out of Russia. Do you know that? Yeah, Russia kicked out USAID. Do you know why USAID was kicked out of Russia? Because USAID was funding riots. 
they were funding propaganda in another country. Same thing happened in Bulgaria, Macedonia, Albania. There's an article that I wrote um, back in 2018. And I show the world that someone had unmasked Flynn. It's literally titled Unmasking. And what is it? Let me see if I can find it while we wait for the... Um, Hearing to start again. Let me just go to torysaid.com and pull it up for you guys. Let me share the screen so you can see it. So let me search um, unmasking. Oops. Why isn't it showing? Um, part three. Mm, should be part of Russiagate, if I'm not mistaken. Is it not searching that? Okay, there it is. Russiagate part three, unmasking methods and uh, points of contact. Um, this one tells you everything you need to know about General Flynn being unmasked. And I told the world who unmasked him before the Kislyak call. I even put his picture there. His picture is supposed to be here. Uh, but everything's lagging only because I have another system running in the background. So this guy, this trader, do you know who he is? He is Teft, Ambassador Teft. He unmasked Flynn in November. <laughs> Look at when I wrote this, 2018. The world didn't find out that he unmasked him until 2020. I just want to make that clear. So here's where I talk about unmasking General Flynn. You know, but you know, according to some <laughs> super reliable sources, I'm just good at the internet. This is the corner where I had a showdown with people that are going to um, be going down soon. Here he is. But the key here is his kids. Here's his one daughter. Here is their husband. You know, it's always that they pair him up. It's like Game of Thrones, right? Here's his other daughter. Oh, she's... she's <laughs> She's an FO. All right. Look at that. Her salary is 80% more than average people. Here, Russian election meddling, Bosnia election meddling, Macedonia election meddling, election meddling. I mean, if they've done it in so many other nations, they're experts. Of course they can do it in our nation. USAID is something I've been working on to expose, probably because I've used this. You're going to find that out. Um, in Shadowgate 3, what Obama did with it, 500 million can't balance their books. This is how they rob the people blind. They rob the people blind, you guys. Rob them blind. So that's one. Now let me show you this military-industrial complex. Just, I want you to understand this 
Shadowgate 2 preview that was sent that was, whoa, my site is overloaded. Interesting. Is it because people finally see that I've been writing about this for like forever and now everybody wants that article? What happened? Interesting. Always seems to happen like that, doesn't it? So weird. So bizarre. Um, <laughs> it is so bizarre. I'm still waiting for the line to come on. Okay, Spirit, Death to America, it's up. So if you heard, Patrick Berge resigned, aside from what other losers are like, he got fired. He resigned because they told him that he needed to secure communications for our soldiers out in the field with a home router. You can't do that. And he didn't want blood on his hands. Well, these people here, these generals, have a nonprofit. And that nonprofit uh, that supposedly, uh, it's called the Spirit of America, Patriotism Without Politics. They supposedly save lives, you know? They're helping ISIS, not stopping ISIS. They're promoting war in West Africa, not stopping it. Impeachment, Russian propaganda in the Ukraine. They worked on impeachment. And they help children that are displaced. You mean save the children, please. Now this they are all part of this group. Look at the names. Perkins Coie. What? Here they are talking. What? And here's an excellent interview with Patrick Berge and Lieutenant Scott Bennett. I'm going to be on an interview with Lieutenant Scott Bennett. I think I told you guys over a year and a half ago about this, um, air quote, inter internship that I had with UBS. And he exposed how we were um, paying ISIS through them. So that'll be a very interesting upcoming interview. I'll, I'll share you those links soon. Um, oh, which article? Uh, that's uh, This article is from this year that I'm showing. The previous one was from 2018. All of us are in that position. We are U.S. citizens. We all have a position within our government always. So this is something you should read because you're going to see how they're using a charity. And this is how they helped uh, create this counterintelligence operation against the president. They did it. And again, this is the key. Robert Storch. Torch. Storch. IG of the NSA. He, in 2009, with his wife, Bill Taylor, and George Kent, helped create NABU. He was actually in Ukraine. There's a whole piece that I did on that. I don't know if it's been resurrected, because, you know, when uh, all the Shadowgate went down, um, my website was scrubbed clean, because um, I added in the hands of someone that I thought was a conservative. Turns out they were as liberal as they come. Uh so it was uh, quite interesting. So I'm trying to resurrect a lot of my um, articles that are uh, coming up um, that are pertinent to what we are seeing today. Uh, there's, um, I wonder if I have the, I did post, and that was 2019. So let me see if it's, is it November, October, gosh darn it, or September? 
Yeah, my side's like super slow. Let's just stop that. We're done. I'm done on that. I'm not going to do that. We're waiting for General Flynn's hearing to start now. Um, oh, there's two Scott Adams. Don't get them confused. There's Scott Adams Says, which is um, the Dilbert guy. And then Scott Adams, who um, has Red State Radio. It's an online radio station that guy he's like super liberal and that would make sense because when we try to get um so patricia um trump girl strong that's her handle on twitter um we kind of tag team to try to get general flynn in times square on the billboard and there was a lot of heel dragging and delays and i don't know um you know because now i i i i should have you know, I thought that because he did that, you know, that was a testament of him being committed um, to the cause, uh, even though he was reluctant because he said General Flynn's going to go to jail and he admitted to it. That's it. And I was like, he's never going to be sentenced. And we had a huge argument about that. But in the end, because I was right, uh, he allowed the billboard to go up. And we put General Flynn uh, in Times Square and um, Patricia helped a lot because me just doing it um, wasn't enough. So it was uh, a great opportunity and I loved that Patricia was pushing and pushing um, and we did finally get it. Now I understand the hindrance. I guess it was just giving a little bit. Now... Um, in respects to Biden, I just wanted to say, okay, so we're going to have some footage on that. Um, the Flynn hearing hasn't even started yet. This is driving me insane. Um, we're going to have some footage on that outside and more. And I will be having a watch party. Um, Okay, so um, Catherine Herridge said that Judge Sullivan called a 30-minute recess after significantly derailing the hearing, which is taking place under restrictions. I have a number of ob objections I'd like to put on the record when we return. So that was tweeted out 18 minutes ago. So I guess we got another 10 minutes before we start. And I'm not hanging up. This is one of the core lines. Uh, so I'm not hanging up and being booted out. I was one of the first. When I got on, there were only like 10 people. So... um. Uh, yeah, it was due to end supposedly 12.35, but um, that um, was tweeted out 20 minutes ago. So so we're going to we're gonna, let me tell you something about Joe Biden. So obviously um, he's not going to win. We know that there's no way Kamala Harris could win. We know that. I mean, even just within Democrats, she couldn't get, um, you know, two percent. But. Today is going to be interesting because already he's defied the president by refusing to take a drug test. I mean, how do you refuse something that the president has declared as you're going to do it? I mean, all of us take drug tests for work. I, I, why not? Why not? Oh, because you don't want it public? Are you taking drugs that maybe you shouldn't be taking and the people should know about it is the question. So it's interesting. Let's see. I'm still on mute. Heard the court reporter tell me to wait for a bit. So that's good. So let's see if he comes back on. They're back. Back on.
Okay, let's do that then. If someone's on it, let's get it. Okay, here we go. Hold on, guys. Here we go. And boom, and boom. The court ruled and grants the motion to dismiss, but that doesn't answer the question that we have posed, which is whether Article 3 requires granting the motion to dismiss, whether because there is no adversity between the parties anymore, therefore the court must grant the motion. We don't think that the D.C. Circuit, in a footnote, in an opinion denying mandamus, resolved that fairly significant Article 3 question, especially because in any other case where the plaintiff and the defendant, the plaintiff no longer proceed against the defendant, even after a liability finding, decides to dismiss, that would be the end of an Article 3 controversy. So, for example, if there was a false claim suit that the government brought, a district court had entered partial summary judgment on liability, but hadn't reached the damages phase, and then the United States decided they wanted to dismiss that civil suit, that would be Article 3 move. And there's no difference between that and a criminal case, because Article 3 applies equally to civil and criminal cases. The second point I'd like to address briefly is the question of the Rule 48 standard in a situation where there's uh, the defendant agrees. We're not suggesting that this court is a rubber stamp or that the court has no role to play whatsoever. But I think what's important to note, if you look at the historical examples that Judge Gleason has pointed to, all of those examples are situations where you have, there's a concern that an individual prosecutor is not a frolicking detour whether because they have favoritism to some local bigwig or because they've been bribed or those are all, the examples are all of that ill. And in those situations, we do think the court has a role to play, but the role is to make sure that the decision to dismiss is the considered view, the authoritative view of the executive branch as a whole. It can ensure that main justice, the U.S. attorney and the attorney general have determined that this is the position. Our third point, and relatedly, but what the court cannot do under Rule 48 is second-guess the executive branch's authoritative position to determine whether, as Judge Gleason puts it, either whether there is pretext or whether there's favoritism. I think there are two key quotes that make this clear. The first is a quote, it's from the Supreme Court's Nixon decision at page 693. The executive branch has, quote, the exclusive authority and the absolute whether to prosecute a case. And that the second quote is from the Fokker decision at page 742. That the leave of court authority gives no power to a district court to deny a prosecutor's Rule 48 motion to dismiss charges based on a disagreement with the prosecution's exercise of charging authority. Both of those quotes, by their plain and unambiguous terms, pick up Judge Gleason's argument. They pick up a situation where there's favoritism, they pick up a situation where there's pretext. That, those, those are unambiguous quotes from controlling precedent, both of which post-date Amidown. The last point uh, I'll make before I turn it over to Mr. Cole is on the materiality standard. Judge Gleason has emphasized, as your honor did as well, that a material, the materiality standard is an objective one. It doesn't matter whether an individual uh, government agent was actually misled. And we agree with that. If you look at page 17 of the motion to dismiss, we ourselves cited Moore and Safavian, which are this circuit's 
the DC Circuit's cases on those principles. But the critical point here is we those are cases about whether whether the court should convict a defendant. And it is certainly not a question about whether the Department of Justice should bring a case in such circumstances. It would be fairly remarkable if the Department of Justice was convinced, convinced that the FBI had went out and asked a bunch of questions that they knew the answers to and didn't care what the answers to just to set up a defendant that they would nevertheless be compelled to bring a prosecution and that a jury would convict. That is just simply not a proper interpretation of Rule 48. And with that, I will turn it over to Mr. Cole. All right, thank you, Counsel. Good morning, Your Honor. Um, morning, morning, Counsel. As you know, I've been around the courthouse uh, for three decades. I'm the senior most, uh, senior ranking career person in our office right now. And I wanted to appear today because the allegations against our office that we would somehow operate uh, or act with a corrupt political motive just are not true. I've never seen it in my entire career in our office, and uh, it didn't happen here. I'm here to say that the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office decision to dismiss this case was the right call for the right reasons. Um, the, I, you know, we, we're completely unafraid here, here to address, to get in the and address the specifics as to why we thought we needed to dismiss this case. There, uh, in my judgment, Your Honor, there isn't a case, um, and. I'd be, we'd be happy to go through the uh, evidence, but I just want to emphasize one thing. As the court knows, once the government finds some evidence of wrongdoing, it's our responsibility to do a proper investigation. And um, you know that the attorney general had uh, asked uh, U.S. Attorney Jack Benson to do a review uh, from beginning to end in terms of the origin of this investigation. There was also the uh, FBI has asked its inspection division to look at some of the work that was done uh, on this case as well. Um, it is a continuing review. And some of the things that have been found, uh, including the case agent, the, 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 the statement that was made just recently by the case agent on this case, Bill Barnett, who told us that he was working on the Flynn case when uh, it was realized, it was discovered that Flynn had talked to Ambassador Kislyak. He, it did not, that call did not change his assessment that Flynn was in any way compromised by the country of Russia. Uh, he later, he followed this case, he briefed the uh, special counsel's office that of his assessment there was no crime and his belief uh, that and he observed that as he interacted with the special counsel's office and observed them interview witnesses on this case, uh, it was his impression that the SCO was being, that the Flynn case was being used to get Trump uh, and that it affected how they handled witnesses in the case. Now, normally, Your Honor, those accusations alone would, would, would be game over for the prosecution. There certainly would be uh, a need to do a further review, um, but it's more than that. Notes that have been discovered uh, over at DOJ and among the special counsel files 
showed that the special counsel prosecutors themselves met with DOJ officials and observed that they gave an update on how the Flynn investigation was going. And they observed that Flynn had a bad memory. That's consistent, of course, with his claims of innocence in this case. Plus, we have newly discovered the HIPSI transcript that had been classified and that we didn't have access to uh, by the U.S. House of Representatives of James Comey's uh, testimony. And when he was asked directly, do you think Flynn lied? He said, I don't know. I think there's an argument he lied. It's a close one. Now, when the most authoritative voice for the FBI, the director, is saying he doesn't know, he thinks there's an argument he lied, now, that's a problem for the government. It's not simply a matter of would that statement be admissible against us. We don't prosecute people. We don't just throw the evidence on the wall to see what sticks. We prosecute people when we're, they're certain they committed a crime. And as your honor knows, the agents left the interview of Mr. Flynn and they said they, they, they could not tell from his demeanor whether he actually knew he was lying. Uh, and they had doubts as to whether he did lie. The last thing I'd point out, um, we ultimately have to prove this case with witnesses. I mean, in the end, there is no recording of what Mr. Flynn said. It's going to be the testimony of the case agents who were there. Both of the agents who were there have, since this case was charged, I'm sorry, had I, just need to, I just need to ask you a question. Are you saying there's no recording of what Mr. Flynn said? There's no uh, audio recording. There is a 302, Your Honor. Yes, there is a write-up. Of the FBI. But the, of the FBI interview. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, let me clarify. I'm referring now to the January 24th, 2017 uh, interview of Mr. Flynn. That's the basis of this charge, right? There's no audio recording of exactly what he said or didn't say during that interview. It is just the FBI's recollection based on their notes and their 302. There were two agents that were present. One agent, uh, I mean, who are we going to call as witnesses in this case? Are we going to call uh, Pete Strzok, the lead agent that had drove this investigation, who in, who the Office of Inspector General had said that he his, his text, I'm quoting, uh, implied a willingness to take official action to impact the presidential candidate's electoral pros prospects. That was this same administration. He spoke of how he felt himself that he was a insurance policy. The work that he was doing would be an insurance policy to blunt uh, Trump if he's elected. The very next day after he sent that message, he opened this investigation. Uh, do we call the second interview? We had a whole separate um, Office of Inspector General report that uh, found that he misled the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court about material facts concerning another Trump advisor, Carter Page? Or do we call the deputy director who ordered the interview, Andy McCain, who was fired by DOJ after they determined he lied under oath, including to FBI agents? We, if we afforded this case, we'd be put in a position of presenting the testimony of Andy McCabe, a person who our office who did not prosecute for the same offense that he'd be, uh, that we'd be proceeding to trial against with respect to Mr. Flynn. So all of our evidence, all of our, um, all of our witnesses in this case, 
as to what Mr. Flynn did or didn't do have been uh, have had specific findings by the Office of Inspector General, lying under oath, misleading the court, acting with political motivation. Uh, never, never in my career, Your Honor, have I had a case with witnesses, all of whom have had specific credibility findings and then been pressed to go forward with a prosecution. We're never expected to do so. So uh, based on all of those concerns, not the least of which, again, I mentioned, you have the case agent on this case, Bill Barnett, <clears throat> saying he never saw a problem with Flynn's conversation with Ambassador Kislyak. It did not change his opinion as to whether he uh, was an agent of Russia. He was left out of the interview of Mr. Flynn <clears throat> and ultimately uh, briefed the same process charge this case uh, with his assessment that no crime had occurred. When, when, Your Honor, has our office ever been pressed to go forward with the prosecution under those circumstances? All right. Thank you, counsel. Um, I was going to, I don't have in front of me right now a document that I wanted to ask you a question about. I'll have you, I'll have that document in front of me in, about, uh, in a few minutes or so, counsel. Uh, but let me ask you, since you raised the question of the reason or the purpose for um, government action, there was a letter sent by um, Mr. Flynn's current attorney to the uh, current attorney general uh, in June, I think, of 2019. Uh, are you familiar with that letter? Your Honor, not specifically, but uh, please go ahead. We do have it. I've just asked someone on my staff to get it. I had it. There's so many binders. I had it in, in one of the many binders, and I can't put my hand on it. Um, so just relax for a second. Uh, I'll have it within the next... Uh... Let me just read this letter. Thank you, Kristen. Let me just read this letter to you. Um, it's a letter dated June 6, 2019. Uh, it's addressed... It's from uh, Mr. Flynn's current attorney uh, to uh, the Attorney General, the current Attorney General, and also Jeffrey Rosen the Deputy Attorney General. Is he still the Deputy Attorney General? Yes, he is, sir. All right. And I'll just read it since you don't have a copy uh, in front of you. I write, Dear Attorney General Barr and Deputy Attorney General Rosen, I write on behalf of Lieutenant General Michael Flynn and as a former Assistant United States Attorney of 10 years service under nine United States Attorneys from both political parties. As a lawyer dedicated to the rule of law and a firm believer in the mandate of Berger versus United States, that the role of the United States is to seek justice, not convictions. It is my fervent hope that you and the Department of Justice will use this case to restore integrity and trust in the department and reinstate clear application of the rule of law. Uh, it's important that to, to note, I'm just, this is just my, um, um, postscript here. It's important to note that at the time she wrote this letter, she she had not entered an appearance in this case. In fact, the next paragraph addresses her status, the attorney status. Covington and Burley has moved to withdraw, which means that Covington and Burley was still representing Mr. Flynn, and I will soon appear on the record on behalf of General Flynn. They, meaning Covington and Burley, are not aware of this communication, which I will treat with the utmost confidentiality. 
My goal is to encourage and allow the department to address these issues internally for the benefit of all concerned, especially the department itself. Despite what he and his family have been through, General Flynn firmly believes in our justice system and hopes to be a positive and forceful spokesperson for it in the future. This letter is a preliminary outreach primarily to provide you with an outline and notice of likely exculpatory information we ask you to watch for as you and your appointed investigators, independent of the special counsel office, are re-examining the possible corruption of our beloved government institutions for what appears to be political purposes and to suggest a just resolution of the evidence shows what we believe to be true. And I'm not going to read the letter. It's a 10-page letter stated June 1st. It was filed on the docket in this case in October of 19. It was filed as an attachment to um, a government pleading. And um, she, she makes a number of uh, requests. And one, she says, the she requests the appointment of new government counsel with no connection to the special counsel team of attorneys or agents to conduct review of the entire Flynn case for Brady material that has not been produced and prosecutorial misconduct. Um, and then she, she goes on and makes a number of other requests. But what I want to ask you to address is the propriety of this letter. I mean, this, this letter has been somewhat under the radar screen. Um, there's not been a lot of uh, public discussion about this letter. Um, but one must wonder just what the public's reaction would have been had the public known that, that here's a person who doesn't represent someone reaching out to the Attorney General of the United States, which in my opinion would probably be highly unusual, to request that new attorneys be appointed by the Attorney General um, to prosecute a case that she intends to enter her appearance in. Now, I'm not asking you to address on the propriety or the ethics, the legal ethics of what she's done. She can address that herself and, and may well be that the bar will have to address that at some point. Uh, but I'd like your reaction to this letter because it raises questions about the motive for things that have happened in this case, starting with the removal of the team of attorneys uh, who were prosecuting Mr. Flynn. Mr. Cole? Uh, so, Your Honor, if I could answer that. Uh, so, Your Honor, the Attorney General made his decision here about to investigate uh, the uh, this case in significant part because of the withdrawal of the plea that ultimately occurred and the emerging evidence of the FBI misconduct. It wasn't based on this letter to the best of my knowledge. That said, I don't- well, Do you know that Do you know that for a fact that this, that there was no action by the attorney general pursuant to this letter or are you just, are you just speculating? So I do not know one way or the other. I've not spoken to the attorney general about this precise letter. I have uh, spoken to the attorney general about uh, the decisions that were made in this case. But I would say that it's not setting aside whatever sort of bar issues you would raise. It's not apparent to me why it would be a problem for a lawyer or a citizen to raise concerns about misconduct in a criminal prosecution. That is something that the Department of Justice takes seriously and properly takes seriously. 
do you know whether or not there was response to this um, to this letter by the Attorney General? And if so, I'd like to get a copy of that response. Not to my uh, knowledge, Your Honor. I, I, I'll look into it, and if there was, it, we will get back to you about that. Because when she concludes her letter, she says, we appreciate your attention to and consideration of these important issues. And again, this is from a person, uh, a lawyer, who intends to enter her appearance on behalf of someone who's being prosecuted by the government. In fact, someone who has already participated in the preliminary sentencing hearing. And she says, I look forward to your reply. And then she gives her cell number. It's blacked out. I'm not going to repeat it even if I knew it. Um, and I would like to schedule a meeting to discuss this further at your convenience and provide you additional information. So I'd like to know what the attorney general wrote and respond. I want to get a copy of that. His reply to this letter, reply by the uh, deputy attorney general to this letter. I'd like to know what, what further meetings were scheduled, what was discussed at those meetings, the minutes of those meetings, and any further communication between the Attorney General Rosen and, and, uh, and, and the attorney for Mr. Flynn. And I'd like to get that as soon as possible, Counsel. So, Your Honor. Excuse me, I can probably address that question. Uh, I, I, didn't ask you. I, didn't address, I didn't ask you to address it. I'll give you a chance at some point. Counsel? So, Your Honor, I don't know whether there was any sort of reply or meeting. I will look into it uh, as to whether we will provide that. Of course, as you're aware, those sort of communications, whether uh, we would produce that is something that I would have to talk with uh, the leadership of the department. We will, I will look into the factual premise and we will respond to you. Right. I, I, I appreciate that. I mean, there may be a legitimate... Uh, um, reasons for, for not disclosing that. I, I certainly don't uh, don't don't uh, sit here and say that there aren't. So I, I appreciate that. I just I would just like a response to my questions, counsel. Um, all right. Anything further with respect to that letter dated June June the sixth, two thousand nineteen? No, respect to the letter. All right. All right. Okay. Miss um, Powell, you wanted to say something. Uh, yes, sir. I have a number of things to say. I'll address the letter issue first, if I might. The only sure. response that was received from the Department of Justice was from Mr. Van Grack, denying that he had any Brady material whatsoever. There was no response from the Attorney General. There was no meeting with me at all. I did the same thing, writing a letter to Attorney General Eric Holder in the Brown case that's detailed in my book, License to Lie, Exposing Corruption in the Department of Justice. In that case, I was afforded a meeting with the Principal Deputy Assistant Attorney General Rita Glavin and with uh, Gary Grindler, Chief of Staff for Eric Holder, at which I spent a significant amount of effort trying to get the Department of Justice to do the right thing in that case before it was ultimately reversed and dismissed. I have a number of other objections that I would like to make on the record. We object vehemently. Let me, let me ask you this before you get to your other objections. And since we're talking about, um, since I raised the issue about communications and correspondence with the um, uh, Department of Justice, have you had discussions with the president about this case? I have not, Your Honor. While the case was pending pre-motion uh, to dismiss or otherwise, other than an update as to what happened in it. I'm sorry, I'm not sure I understand your answer. 
But the question is whether you've had any discussions at all with the president of the United States about Mr. Flynn and about this case. Yes or no? I'm sorry, Your Honor, I can't discuss that any further. And the reason why you that. can't, what's the reason why you can't discuss that? I would think any conversations that I had with the president would be protected by executive privilege. Well, you don't, you don't work for the government. I don't think the executive privilege is limited to people who work for the government. So, so you're, you're invoked. So you, you're purporting to invoke executive privilege, not to answer the court's question about whether you discuss Mr. Flynn's case with the president of the United States. Is that correct? Yes, other than the fact that after the government moved to dismiss, or at some point in the last month or so, I provided the White House an update on the overall status of the litigation. And how, how did you provide that update? Was it in writing? No, sir. How, how did you provide that update? Who did you speak with? I provided it in uh, person to counsel for the president. Well, which, I mean, the White House counsel or deputy or who did you speak to? Your Honor, I spoke with uh, Jenna Ellis and I spoke with the president himself to provide a brief update of the status of the litigation within the last couple of weeks. And, and did, you, did you make any requests to the president? No, sir, other than he not issue a pardon. All right, P prior to that discussion with the president, how many discussions with the president have you had about this case? That's the only one I recall. So you're not ruling out other discussions? Well, certainly you would recall a discussion with the president of the United States, wouldn't you? Well, I've had a number of discussions with the president of the United States. I think the New York Times reported I've had five. So it seems like they probably have a number better than I know. But well, I is, the New York, is the New York Times, uh, rep are the New York Times representations erroneous? I couldn't tell you the number of times I've actually spoken with the president, Your Honor. All right, about this case. But there's been more no, than sir, one. I can, tell you, I can tell you I spoke one time to the president about this case to inform him of the general status of the litigation. I request is that within the last two weeks? Tom has a way of getting by for me, but it's certainly well after the government moved to dismiss and probably, if I recall correctly, after the writ of mandamus was entered. Right. Did you ever ask the President of the United States to request his Attorney General to appoint new attorneys in this case? Oh, heavens no. Right. So very succinctly, just so I have a clear understanding, what precisely, during the first time you spoke with the President of the United States, what precisely did you ask him to do in connection with this case? What action did you, what would you ask him to do in connection with this case? I never discussed this case with the President until recently when I asked him not to issue a pardon and gave him the general update of the status of the litigation. All right. All right. You had a number of other objections. Yes, I have a number of objections. Go right ahead. Oh, well, I'm sorry. But before we get uh, before we move on to that, your letter dated June the June the sixth, two thousand nineteen. At the time you wrote that letter, um, Mr. Flynn was represented by uh, Covington and Burley. 
Uh, was that ethically appropriate for you to write a letter on behalf of someone you didn't uh, represent to request some action on that, on that, uh, on behalf of that person, knowing that that person was was uh, was being represented by other counsel? Mr. Flynn had already terminated Covington and Burling at that point. I did, in fact, represent him. I simply not entered an appearance yet before the court for other reasons that are constitute work product. All right. So, so your answer is, uh, in, in your opinion, it was ethically appropriate for you to write that letter then, correct? Perfectly. As I said, right. I did the same thing to Attorney General Eric Holder in the Brown case, except that letter was much more substantial and longer and had more exhibits with it. All right. So uh, what else do you want to... Would you like to put on the record, counsel? I want to make clear that we object to all the court's orders appointing Mr. Gleason or instructing him to do anything, that we object to any and all amicus appearing in a criminal case against a defendant and request to strike all of that briefing. We request to strike all of Gleason's briefing and exhibits. There is no, he's not a party. He has no legitimate role in this case under the rules or under the Supreme Court's decision in Hollingsworth versus Perry. It's wholly inappropriate. It's also inappropriate for all the separation of powers issues that it raises. No court has ever appointed someone as a special prosecutor like this effectively to proceed against a criminal defendant when the government has requested to drop the prosecution. All right. I think, I think your position is, your position is, is crystal clear, I believe, in the record. If you believe that it's not, you can file an, an appropriate motion, counsel. But I believe the record supports your your um, your total disagreement with the appointment of the uh, amethyst in this case. I didn't spend any time, Your Honor. I didn't spend any time earlier talking about the uh, reasons for or against the appointment of the amicus because I'm. I'm firmly under, under the impression that, that everyone's position is crystal clear. But if you believe that there's a need to supplement uh, the record uh, before this court, then, then, then certainly you should file whatever you believe is consistent with your client's best interest, counsel. Yes, and I will do that. I believe I need to also move to disqualify the court and urge that it recuse itself immediately. It's absolutely unprecedented for proceedings against a defendant to be conducted by a person who actively litigated against him. In further evidence of bias, this court did not act forthwith to schedule this hearing or decide the motion. The court just allowed a filing against the defendant by attorney for Peter Strzok, one of the dirtiest FBI agents in the case. When the government exped and Flynn even expedited the efforts to have this court hear the case, the court picked the very last date the parties had possibly agreed to after setting September 21 as a scheduling deadline, which was multiple weeks after the Court of Appeals. Let, let, me, let me just say one thing about that. Uh, we took very seriously um, the remand by the, uh, the Court of Appeals um, on Bonk. And uh, I, I don't practice, have not practiced uh, <laughs> law in many years. I was once a judge on the D.C. Court of Appeals, but I've forgotten all the all the uh, appellate law I've ever known about um, uh, when uh, cases remanded uh, after mandamus relief is, is, is denied. When can a court properly uh, proceed with, um, uh, with, with any further matters? So uh, there, there were a number of questions. Uh, my understanding is that I wanted to be fair about this. I didn't know whether uh, Mr. Flynn was going to file a petition with Sergio Bear Rye, and that's uh, 
you know, of course, um, an option available to him. So we wanted to be mindful of what the time frame was for for him to exercise that um, uh, discretion. Um, we also wanted to be certain about when the quote-unquote mandate was returned to, to this court. Uh, I didn't want it to appear that the court was doing anything uh, prior to its first opportunity to consider a case after remand. And that's the reason why the court issued a scheduling order blocking off a significant amount of time that we believe should elapse before this court had uh, jurisdiction vested with it again. So that's the reason for the court's scheduling order to say, I know later than a certain date, tell us how you wish to proceed. Uh, you're objecting to a date that, <laughs> that you and everyone else suggested. It was the date that was convenient, most convenient for the court. Today's date, the 29th, um, it wasn't as if the court selected any date um, um, to disadvantage Mr. Flynn or anyone else. So if I understand your objection, you're objecting because it's the last date the court selected. Well, that's one of the dates that you selected and suggested to the court. Uh, but that's the reason for the court's delay, because I didn't want it to appear that we were doing, that the court was doing anything uh, during a period of time uh, wherein jurisdiction had not been uh, returned to this court. And that's the reason for the court's scheduling order to say, by no later than, I think it was the 21st of September, I don't have in front of me, whatever you say is correct, uh, let us know, because the time would have um, expired. Uh, and the ma mandate, quote unquote, would have been returned to this court. So I was proceeding very cautiously and also mindful that, well, maybe, maybe the attorneys will seek, uh, will file a petition to search and rarize. So wasn't any uh, effort to unduly de delay this proceeding. What's your next point? A petition for certiorari does not delay the mandate or the issuance of the mandate. Right, I understand that. It's academic right now. You're here now. You have your day in court. What's your next point? The next point is that your comments this morning, the court's comments this morning, cement the abject bias of the court that mandate its disqualification. It firmly appears that the court appointed Mr. Gleason to support its own personal views that Flynn must be sent to prison regardless of the facts or the law. Mr. Gleason is not a party. He has no lawful standing in this case. He's completely ignored the massive disclosures of evidence of egregious government misconduct the government has provided in the last 60 days or so. Uh, the court's comments about a new attorney general ignores also that massive production and seems to indicate its own political bias. As the court knows from the D.C. Circuit's decision in the United States versus Al Nashiri, unbiased impartial adjudicators are the cornerstone of any system of justice worth the label and because deference to the judgments and rulings of the court depends upon public confidence and the integrity and independence of judges jurors must avoid even the appearance of partiality justice must satisfy the appearance of justice sorry let me ask let me ask you this you know the record in this case is voluminous i'm not sure whether uh you ever filed a motion to be accused in this case before me. I don't know. Did you? I may, I may be mistaken. I don't believe you have. If you I'm have making that motion right now, Your Honor. Well, if you, you put it in writing. Uh, I, I don't want to cut you off, but if you want to file a motion to recuse, you probably should have filed it, but you didn't, and I'll certainly afford you an opportunity to, to prepare and file an appropriate motion to recuse. I'm not going to address that on, a, on oral representations of counsel. I'm not going to waste 
your time or everyone else's time. You could have filed a motion to write. You could have filed it in, in June. Uh, you could have filed it earlier. But even though you didn't, I'll certainly afford you an opportunity to do that. I'll give you a week from the day to file your motion to recuse. Next point. I will file that motion to your recuse, Your Honor, because we believe even if it didn't occur when the court actively I don't need to hear anything more about that. I'm going to give you an opportunity to file your motion to the accused. I'll give you a week from the day. What's your next point you'd like to put on the record? The court mentioned that Mr. General Flynn had that Mr. Flynn was scheduled to testify and chose not to cooperate. That statement is completely false. Mr. Flynn was fully prepared to cooperate in the Eastern District of Virginia in the Rafikian case until government prosecutor Brandon Van Grack insisted that Mr. Flynn lie about his knowledge of the false fair filing. The false fair filing that the government alleged was false. The false statements were actually created by the government itself or by Covington and Burling. We established that with filings that we've provided the court already. And we also briefed fully for the court how Mr. Van Brack had threatened General Flynn and proceeded to try to compel him to testify to facts Mr. Van Brack knew was false because Mr. Van Brack himself had deleted those remarks or that portion then and there knew from the statement of offense himself. And all the documents that support that are in the record before the court. All right, thank you. Next point. That's it for the objections. I have uh, other arguments to make when the court. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll get to those after I afford Mr. Policeman um, an opportunity to comment on what the court had intended to do, which was to summarize uh, the principal arguments that that uh, the parties uh, had, had made had made in this case, Mr. Policeman. Yes, I think you did a good job of that, Judge. I have no objections to your summary of the essential arguments. I, too, would like to be heard at the appropriate time, but your summary is fine with the amicus. All right, thank you. And, and for the record, I've, I've read or I've read somewhere, uh, either in a pleading or in print, that, that I pointed you after discussing uh, this matter with you. And, and for the record, I would just like to state and... and uh, uh, and, and ask you whether or not you and I have ever discussed this case whatsoever. No, this is uh, the first time I've had the pleasure of addressing the court. All right. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Council. Um, I have a few questions for um, for government counsel. Um, if, if the court were to deny the motion, what would the next steps be? Um, should, should the next step be to allow Mr. Flynn to attempt to withdraw his plea, alleging ineffective assistance of counsel? Um, I, I recall very vividly that the parties, uh, Mr. Flynn and the government, had uh, been working very diligently to, um, to see if they could agree on um, what could be said and what could not be said with respect to um, the motion to, uh, to, to dismiss motion to withdraw the plea based upon uh, ineffective assistance of counsel. And, and I, and I uh, really appreciated their hard work. I know they were being very diligent in an effort to reach an agreement. Um, but 
what happened was the government, uh, with, with newly appointed counsel, uh, filed a, a motion to dismiss, and the court uh, never directed uh, the previous attorneys to file a response to the, uh, to the motion to withdraw. Um, so court do? I mean, who, who should I direct, address these questions to? Mr. Cole or your colleague? Sure, Your Honor. Um, yeah, the, you're, you're correct. The motion to withdraw the plea has not been uh, resolved. Um, our position is, you know, we're just well aware, as you are, uh, Your Honor, that under D.C. Circuit case law, that uh, motions to withdraw a guilty plea prior to sentencing are to be liberally granted. Um, you yourself, Your Honor, emphasized when you met with Mr. Flynn the first time back in December of 2018 that you can't recall any instant in which the court has, and I'm quoting your remarks, has ever accepted a plea of guilty from someone who maintained that he was not guilty, and I don't intend to start today. It would be, I'm sure that's still true today. I definitely understand the court's point that sentencing had started to commence, but of course, Your Honor, it did give Mr. Flynn the opportunity to cooperate, and there's been um, a lot of litigation uh, since then that have been uh, separated apart from the uh, sentencing process. Um, in this case, I just don't even know of a situation where a court has taken a defendant to sentencing who is claiming he's innocent, where he hasn't been afforded a trial. Um, in this case, I'd also like to highlight for your honor, we did do that review of the Covington records. Um, there, there, I know that Mr. Flynn is claiming that, uh, that his plea was under duress and it was affected by threats to prosecute his son. I did just want to um, highlight for the court, you know, the defense counsel is, is placed on the record uh, as document 181. Uh, there was some indication there was a discussion and the unofficial understanding, quote unquote, between the lawyers uh, that they're unlikely to charge the son in light of the cooperation that uh, Mr. Flynn had given. And there was specific discussion in that uh, in that filing by the defense, document 181-2, and I'm quoting from an email from um, Mr. Flynn's attorney uh, that basically says, uh, the only exception is the reference to Michael Jr., that's the defendant's son. The government took pains to not give a promise to Michael T. Flynn regarding Michael Jr., so as to limit how much of a benefit it would have to disclose as part of Giglio disclosures to any defendant against whom Michael T. Flynn may one day testify. <clears throat> that's, that's concerning if there are unofficial agreements uh, between lawyers that were not, that the court hasn't had the opportunity to uh, review with the defendant. There was also concern raised, I know, by the defense that there was a conflict of interest between he and his prior counsel. Uh, that, that wasn't actually covered by your honor in the prior plea. So these are these. I'm not. I'm really not uh, making accusations on either of these things. I'm just, uh, as an officer of court, making the court aware of them that they are something you'd have to go over if you really are not going to allow the defendant to uh, withdraw his plea in this case. And, and your honor, if I can make one last legal point related to that factual point, which is the fact that motions to withdraw guilty pleas are freely granted, underscores why it doesn't make sense. Construing Rule 48 that apply very differently pre plea versus post plea. If 
General Flynn has valid grounds to withdraw his plea, and the government does not wish to prosecute this case. I think even Judge Gleason acknowledged there is at least as a practical matter no real way to proceed. There would be no prosecutor. Judge Gleason, in the footnote in his reply brief, cited Rule 42. The Rule 42 only authorizes the appointment of a prosecutor in a context of contempt. I'm not aware, and I don't believe Judge Gleason will be able to cite a single instance in the history of this country where a federal appellate court has allowed a private prosecutor to prosecute a defendant in federal court. And so I think that just underscores why Rule, 40, uh, why Rule 48 should not be construed to draw this magic line between pre and post plea, especially because the right to withdraw the plea should be freely granted, and this court should be making decisions about whether it'll allow him to withdraw his plea based on the concern that otherwise the case will end because we don't intend to prosecute it. Let me ask you, thank, thank you, counsel. Let me ask you, you're, you're, um, you're looking at my list of questions here but because the next question would have been, can you, can the government point to any case in the history of our system of justice that um, is identical on all fours to this case where an, an individual has on more than one occasion that guilty under oath, um, under penalty of perjury, his guilt, um, and and actually and indeed proceeded to sentencing because I'm not going to overlook the fact that in December 2018 uh, the court presided over the first sentencing hearing, but in an effort to be fair to this man, Mr. Flynn, as I am to everyone. I continued sentencing to allow him to cooperate to the fullest extent so he could get the uh, complete bargain, to, so he could get the complete benefit of his bargain with the government. But is there any circuit authority or district court authority or any other authority anywhere that is identical on all fours, closely analogous to um, the proceeding before this court? I'm not aware that the government has relied upon any authority in its pleadings. Your Honor, a case that I cite is closely analogous is the Matthew Lowry. Remember, all, remember just four years ago, we had those series of cases, they were narcotics cases, where it was discovered that an FBI agent by the name of Matthew Lowry had an addiction to how prescription I, how pain. Could I forget, how could I forget those cases? Yes, I had, I, had, uh, I had some of those cases, right, thank you. Yes, and, and when it was discovered that there was this wrongdoing, um, and, and it found that it wasn't just that he was addicted, for but the he actually for the record, the alleged, for the record, the alleged wrongdoing was um, yeah. uh, taking uh, uh, my evidence room um, that consisted of controlled substances, if I recall correctly. And for that, he was prosecuted and convicted before my colleagues at Hogan, I believe, and incarcerated. I recall that case. Right. And what was interesting about that case, Your Honor, is he was tampering with evidence in some cases. We affirmatively then reviewed all of the cases that he had involvement in, and Your Honor was actually very engaged in that and making sure that we did a proper review of every other case. He moved to dismiss the indictments uh, against 28 defendants. Now, many of those defendants had pled, 25 of them had pled guilty under oath. He admitted their responsibility, and yet, uh, and, and some were serving sentence, but we moved to dismiss uh, all of those cases because. There was a higher principle at stake and that when the government uh, seeks to deprive a person of their liberty, that law enforcement 
do their jobs the right way. And that really has been the theme here. The law enforcement, uh, you know, it is really raises eyebrows in and serious concerns in terms of how this case was pushed together uh, and eventually um, charged. Um, so it is similar to Lowry in that respect. And if I could rest one last point on your question about precedent, Your Honor, to the best of my awareness and to the best of Judge Gleason's briefing, I do not believe that there is a single appellate case in the history of this country where an appellate court has upheld the denial of a Rule 48 motion over the opposition of uh, where the, uh, the defendant agrees. Not a single one on any sort of facts. These facts or any others, it has never happened. All right. I don't believe there were any written opinions in Lowry. I know I had, I presided over a, a few matters, a couple of matters. I didn't, I didn't offer any opinions. I'm not sure if any of my colleagues did as well. Um, and, and just, just to be clear, I believe that the government relied upon the Lowry cases in its written submission. I mean, I'll go back and read anything you want me to read, but I don't believe there were any written opinions, were there, in Lowry? I don't think there was uh, written opinions, Your Honor. Right, right. As I recall correctly, we actually engaged the uh, United States Attorney from the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, I believe, to prosecute some matters because it, things became very complicated. But I don't recall that anyone wrote any opinions or so. But I do recall the uh, I do recall the factual basis for um, for the uh, number of dismissals of of um, indictments and informations and pleas of guilty. Um, on what authority could the court deny the motion without prejudice? Well, so, Your Honor, we do think that Article 3 and Article 2 and the Rule 48 standards all require that the motion be granted uh, and that the case be dismissed. We, it is true that whether it has to be dismissed with or without prejudice, we don't, we don't think that there's a constitutional requirement for that. But we do think that in the circumstances of this case, given everything that the government has discovered, we do think it would be an abuse of discretion to dismiss it without prejudice. But the most important point is that whether it be dismissed with or without prejudice, that would be dismissed. All right. So you're not, so, so just to be clear, the government's not advocating for either or, with or without prejudice, correct? You're ad advocating for dismissal. That's a lot unclear. I got you there. But you're not drawing a line for either with or without prejudice. No, our motion is for it to be dismissed with prejudice. If you look at the motion, that, that is an express uh, request, and we stand by that. Because, as I said, I, we do think it would be an abuse of discretion in the circumstances of this case to deny it without prejudice, uh, to dismiss it without prejudice. I was just saying that as a constitutional matter, we're not saying that that part, the with or without prejudice, we don't think the Constitution compels that. We do think that the Constitution compels that the case be dismissed. All right. Let me ask. Let me ask you this, counsel. Um, when the plea colloquy before Judge Contreras, Mr. Flynn um, also admitted his complicity in certain um, uncharged criminal conduct. And as part of the plea agreement, and he did that under oath. And as part of the plea agreement, the government uh, agreed not to prosecute him further for the uncharged criminal conduct. Um, recognizing that the uncharged criminal conduct that he admitted he had um, been engaged in is related to 
the conviction before this court, um, could a, wouldn't it be appropriate to enable any future attorney general or administration an opportunity to consider whether he should be prosecuted for the uncharged criminal conduct? Um, and indeed, this case, uh, and that counsels in favor of any um, denial without prejudice. And, and let me just say one thing so the record's clear. I ask a lot of questions, and I, if I ask a question, I don't know the answer to it. Um, but no one should read too much into any question that um, the court answers, uh, I ask, and, and uh, because I'm just trying to reach the right decision for the right reason. So we're talking about dismissal with or without prejudice now. And I'm talking about any prejudice to any future administration or future attorney general under this administration, for that matter, um, who may want to prosecute for the related charge, uncharged criminal conduct and indeed uh, the 1001A offense. So, Your Honor, my understanding, though, I, I like confirmation from Mr. Cole, is that because the FARA claim is not charged conduct, if one count that is charged is with or without prejudice, the prejudice is only with respect to the charged offense. So that that will not affect the separate FARA count, which is not affected by the dismissal one way or the other. And the only thing I'd add to that is. Um, uh, and I told the colleague on that. I know you were presented a statement of offense in this case in, in December of 2018. And when you looked at it, it, it looks like he violations. Um, but one of the things that we learned in the review with the, of the Covington documents, uh, when we're looking into the conflict of interest issue, and again, none of this was ultimately resolved, but there was specific back and forth negotiating the exact language in that statement of offense. And Mr. apparently the defendant insisted on removing language from the statement of offense that you had, uh, where it fully admitted that there were false filings, took out the operative language that he knew at the time that the filings were false. And of course, they were prepared by his attorneys. And that, that, that's what that's, I think, the gravamen of the claim that there was a conflict of interest for that, those same attorneys who handled the filings to now present him in court uh, on the case. But the, the, um, the one thing I'll add, because he never admitted that intent part of it, um, it led to real problems in the prosecution in Eastern District of Virginia. And they couldn't use him as a witness because he actually never admitted under oath that he knowingly filed a false fare of filings. Even though they got a conviction partner, Judge Tranga seized on that same problem with respect to the other business partner. So, um, um, Mr. Rafikian, so some some of this that you were presented isn't quite what it appears. Uh, and uh, but but you're right. Uh, the dismissal of this case won't affect uh, some future prosecutor's ability to go forward on FARA if if the evidence actually is there. All right. Thank you, Counsel. Why should why should the court um, strike that? The court addressed materiality uh, in its December 2019 opinion. Um, what's what's the factual and legal predicate to persuade the court in that exercise again? And I hasten to add that um, um, the Senate never asked me to reconsider that opinion whatsoever. Well, so let me address the legal part of that, and then I, Mr. Cole will address the factual part. I think a critical part of this is, again, this is a Rule 48 motion. So 
we are moving to dismiss. And when we move to dismiss, the question in our mind is not what is the legal standard of materiality for whether the evidence here would be sufficient to sustain a conviction on appeal. The question is whether we, the Department of Justice, think that this evidence is material and more to the point, whether we, the Department of Justice, think we should bring a case. And so the inquiry that was at issue in the Brady analysis is just not the same issue as whether we should move to dismiss. That's compounded by the fact that there are factual differences between the record at the time and the record now, which I'll allow Mr. Cole to elaborate on. Yes, Your Honor. And it's such a good question because, uh, you know, going back again to the December uh, 2018 plea hearing, um, you'll remember you read the statement of offense. And the statement of offense is pretty clear as to what the materiality is, at least what's alleged. It is that Flynn's false statements impeded and otherwise had a material impact on the FBI's ongoing investigation into the existence of any links or coordination between individuals associated with the Trump campaign and Russia's efforts to interfere with the election. That, 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 that's the investigation called Crossfire uh, Hurricane. So you've read that, and, and Mr. Flynn pled guilty at the time, for sure. Uh, that This is what was represented by the special counsel's office uh, to you. Um, and then you asked twice during that hearing questions of the defense attorneys. You asked... Uh, you ask questions, Your Honor, really, that ultimately is what's led to the unraveling of this case. Because at that hearing, Your Honor asked both counsel, I need to know answers about how he impeded the investigation and what the material impact on the investigation was, quote unquote. Uh, these are questions, you went on to say, that you would be prepared to answer anyway. And as you know, how the government's investigation was impeded. What was the material impact of the criminality? Now, uh, Mr. Gleason would say uh, none of those things matter in a technical way in terms of meeting the elements of the defense. But you're asking those questions because you wanted to gauge the seriousness of his conduct. Uh, appropriate, totally appropriate. And you might have been imagining in your mind that Flynn's uh, false statements in January of 2007 set back the Russian investigation, which of course was a hugely important investigation, uh, set back for six months or something. Well, what if your honor were to know that not only did it not set back the investigation, but the agents who did the interview at the time didn't even view it as committed to crossfire hurricane. So it's not just a matter of technically what clever attorneys uh, can argue to, 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 to come up with a rationale for the, inter the interview that was done with Mr. Flynn in January of uh, 2017. It's a matter of what's actually true. What's actually true. And if in the end, on materiality, we, you know, we were there. We made the argument that, that supported your Brady ruling in December of 2019 uh, because that's what the statement of offense said. But once the defendant withdrew his plea, moved to withdraw his plea, it causes us to look at it another way. Could we actually prove this? Could we prove what was presented to your honor in the statement of offense back in 2018? And what we found as we looked into it is that there was a series of documents that had been discovered by the Jensen Review and, uh, and through some other uh, searches of former uh, special counsel uh, files that, sh that really cast out that the agents, even at the time, thought it was related to Crossfire Hurricane. I'd point to the fact that, yes, Your Honor knew about a closing EC where they were making attempts to close uh, the Flynn investigation, the Flynn separate investigation called Crossfire Razor. But when we looked at the language in the closing EC, it actually showed that the agents themselves said he's no longer a viable candidate as part of the larger 
crossfire hurricane case. That, that's significantly at odds with what the uh, statement of defense said was the reason for the interview. And, and what, if, what if we turned up documents, Your Honor, that showed that even the deputy assistant director of the FBI, which is Peter Strzok, who viewed himself as a bit of an policy against the Trump administration, he didn't even view crossfire hurricane as a justification for uh, the interview. He was scrambling after you learned about the Ambassador Kislyak's, um, the call with Ambassador Kislyak, he, he was grasping to justify an, you know continued investigation of, of the defendant under the Logan Act, not Crossfire Hurricane. And he was citing that he, he was acknowledging in his own communications that there was constitutional problems with that statute. And it certainly had never been, according to the legislative history, in his own mind, I'm quoting his language, never contemplated against incoming administrative administration officials. But what if there was even more? What if the case agent on the case who had been investigating Flynn for months and had recommended closure when he learned about the Kislyak interview, this is the Bill Barnett interview that we supplemented the record on just a couple of weeks ago, uh, said, what if the underlying conduct, um, he, he concluded, he listened to the actual calls with Kislyak, you know, or he reviewed the uh, transcripts, and he did not change his view that Flynn was compromised by the Russians. He didn't see a significant issue with the call. And what if, when, when Pete Strzok was moving to go forward with this interview, um, within 24 hours of him last, Logan Act as the justification, not crossfire hurricane, but it gets briefed to the director of the FBI, and the FBI, within 24 hours, briefs the president of the United States, and notes from that meeting indicate uh, that uh, there is a discussion of the Logan Act with Director Comey, and Director Comey says he references the Flynn Kislyak calls, and he says, yeah, there were these calls, but they appear legit. They appear legit. Now, and then, then of course, lastly, I just emphasize, what if on the morning of the interview, before they interview the defendant on January 24th, there's a meeting with Assistant Director of the FBI for Counterintelligence, and he's writing notes to himself, and he's ruminating about this interview. He's thinking about this interview with Mr. Flynn, and he writes to himself, what's our goal? Well, that's a red flag right there if the uh, leadership of the FBI is wondering what their goal in the interview is. And he writes, truth, admission, or to get him so we can prosecute him or get him fired. Now, if it's true that the Kisley Act calls seemed legit, both to the case agent and all the way up to the director of the FBI, and if it didn't change their impression that uh, their view that the uh, Flynn was compromised in some way by the Russians, then why is the FBI talking about doing an interview in hopes of getting someone fired? That's actually not the FBI's job. And, and one last thing I'd say about this, when they do do the interview, I mean, Mr. Gleason is very capable of arguing the, you know, the rationale. Oh, of course it fits to crossfire her, it says in the statement of offense. And uh, they would want to naturally, if he only had been honest, they could have asked questions about finding out who else Flynn may about the request he made of Kislyak and what other conversations that occurred around that discussion with Ambassador Kislyak. But if that was the purpose of the interview, Your Honor, why didn't the agents actually follow up? Why didn't they actually ask those questions that Mr. Gleason has uh, proffered for the court? Flynn, in that interview, according to FBI 302, volunteered info on other closed-door meetings with the Russians. 
He talked about other communications with the Russians. So why not explore, if Crossfire Hurricane is what it's all about, and who else talked to you about sanctions, why not explore those issues? And, and then, let, let me add, the agents come and they meet with senior leadership at the FBI the next day. And there's discussion about, why don't you go back and do a re-interview? And according to uh, Acting Attorney General Sam Yates, the FBI, all the way up to Deputy Director McCabe, was, quote, pretty emphatic that a re-interview was unnecessary. How could the interview be unnecessary if the agents never asked any of the questions that Mr. Gleason is saying are so obviously in support of doing the interview? So, you know, in the face of all the shifting, you know, rationales that we see in the paperwork of the FBI, I think it's fair for us to ask the same questions you were at the original plea hearing in December of 2018. Did these statements really impede a genuine investigation? And since the agent's justification for the interview are so all over the map, it's certainly fair for us to say and use exercise or discretion that this isn't a case that should be prosecuted. Uh, prosecutors, in the end, uh, in the end, we have to look at people. We, we've got to make sure if the evidence is there against a politically connected defendant that we go forward and charge them. But if the evidence is it, we don't even if they're politically well-connected, and even if there's going to be political blowback. We just tried to make the right call here. Uh, so just, just to take a step further, there, there are some who may arguably um, say that um, this appears to be Monday, back, Monday morning quarterbacking. In other words, the game is over. This is what we could have done um, better um, and, and articulate some steps. But... Um, those same people would say, but this is a new team of attorneys uh, appointed by a new attorney general uh, without any participation whatsoever by uh, the previous attorneys, um, the Mueller team, Office of Special Counsel Attorneys. And, and what inferences should the court draw from, from that, uh, if any? Um, and, and I guess the second part of that question is, wouldn't, wouldn't it have been more appropriate to file a motion for reconsideration since the court spent almost 100 pages talking about there's no Brady material here, uh, there's no Diglio material the court's found, everything that the defendant complains of that he hadn't received, he did receive, um, and address materiality and falsity um, and there was no motion. Wouldn't it have been a more appropriate to file a motion for reconsideration saying, Judge, you know what, we've had a new team of attorneys take a look at this, and we have a, we have a new theory here. Um, and, and, and why should I, why should the court allow that um, new theory to persuade the court that it's appropriate with the fair administration of justice that this plea agreement should be um, allowed to be dismissed with, uh, with prejudice for all those, all those reasons. Your Honor, I, I know it seems like such a reversal in our position because it's just from December where we were supporting the board, court's uh, Brady order, right, until uh, dismissal in May. Um, but that is, uh, as we say, partly because the defense had moved to withdraw and that, that caused us to take a second look at what's, you know, do we have the evidence to prove this case? And we were operating under the assumption that the court uh, would follow its normal course and say, 
I've never gone to fo- go f- on forward uh, on a case where a defendant claiming his innocence and wouldn't and he go forward with a plea on, under those circumstances. But with that said, uh, once we didn't, and, and of course, independently, the attorney general had ordered the investigation uh, after the three Office of Inspector General findings that knocked out all of our witnesses in this case. As that review went forward and we discussed that was problematic, it really wouldn't be um, appropriate for us to move to seek reconsideration because we're not disputing. We have a Brady obligation to turn over this information. So we, we, as the information became known, actually we became so convinced and troubled by uh, the, 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 the inability, to, the evidence just wasn't matching up with what was said in the statement of offense. And once we discovered that, uh, we decided this case is, is done and we decided to move to dismiss. Um, the last thing I'd say that's just so alarming that I just hope, I mean, I, I, I really want to persuade the court because I don't want the court to think we act with political motives. Um, as we continue to do this review, even since we filed the motion to dismiss, what we found was analysts, as they're talking about, this is in the Crossfire Hurricane case, as they're talking about the process that they're issuing on this very defendant, right? They're talking about how there's a lack of credit and they're expressing concern that uh, this is a nightmare. We're taking, we're asking for Flynn's records under national security for which there's no, it's not a logical investigative step. There's no, uh, there's messages among the analysts that uh, people here are scrambling for info uh, to support certain things and it's a madhouse. Um, at one point they're expressing relief that they're finally shutting down the Michael Flynn case, the, the Razor investigation, and they're so glad they're closing Razor, and yet they continue to move forward, making these uh, requests for information that has no logical basis. And in the end, of course, uh, what's most troubling is um, court's indulgence. Sure. The, yeah. Court's indulgence uh, is the, um, the fact that the case agent who's there the whole time, Bill Barnett, uh, is coming forward and saying that he did not see any predicate for this interview on a crossfire hurricane. He didn't. He, in the end, he didn't see that. He didn't raise any alarm bells, and he told the special counsel's office that there was nothing there with respect to Flynn. So, um, I, I do need to emphasize when you say a whole team of law, new lawyers. We're not Monday morning quarterbacking. We're just dealing with the evidence that we're saddled with right now. And the reality, reality is all of this stuff has come, become known in the last several months, including the views of the case agent in terms of motivations and how the investigation was conducted by the SCO. We're not really taking sides. We're just saying, you never, Your Honor, we never expect us to go forward on evidence like this to prosecute a guy who's claiming he's innocent. Um, and I do want you to remember, it's, it, Jocelyn Valentine has been on this case, you know, since last summer. Uh, she has been on each of the pleadings defending this motion to dismiss. Uh, she was on the pleadings in the Court of Appeals. So there's not, you know, she's, she, she defends it as well. These are clear people that are defending this decision, Your Honor. It's not, uh, in the end, even if there were conversations, I, I can't speak to anything about other con- communications. I'm telling you, as critical, this case should be dismissed. All right. Uh, I, I wasn't casting any aspersions on any individual attorneys, counsel. I have a high regard for all the attorneys, and you know that. 
Um, and, and, and I, and after that, she welcomed you to the three decade club. But since we're talking about the three decade club, you'll recall that in the Pitt Stevens case, the court dismissed, uh, that matter with prejudice, uh, on the government's motion to dismiss. I don't recall whether Eric moved to dismiss the prejudice or not. I, I just don't recall. I think he did. Um, but the most compelling reason it then was because there was a ton of Brady, as you know, there was a ton of Brady material that was not turned over. There was intentionally withheld. And, and, and this was after trial, um, after a man had maintained his innocence and testified. Um, but you know, the, the defendant was deprived of an opportunity to use that evidence to cross examination or examination of own, uh, uh, of own witnesses. That's not what we have here, though. We don't have a Ted Stevens review here, though, right? That's not what we're talking about here. No, I, I don't. I mean, I don't view it like that because, you know, we inherited this case 16 months after the, you know, the, 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 the negotiated plea had occurred, right? Uh, and that's when our U.S. Attorney's Office, D.C., got involved. Um, so, and we inherited, the guy had already pled guilty twice and the defendant uh, was still standing by his plea. You, you, you had checked with him as to whether he still wanted to stand by his plea. Um, so in that context, uh, the, the demands for discovery uh, and even Brady is limited solely to uh, matters of sentencing at that point. Uh, I think in the end, uh, it was really uh, our own review that was triggered by uh, the motion to withdraw and the concerns that were raised by the OIG with respect to our, all of our witnesses in the case um, and to take a hard look at the, the evidence. And I think we've done right. We tried to do the right thing and disclose things as soon as we got them. And there are all I'm trying to do to follow up on that thing for the right reasons. And that's why I'm asking all these questions. Um, either you or your colleague mentioned Peter Strzok. Um, you know what? There was a flurry of filings yesterday. I read the letter that was posted from Strzok's attorney. Uh, I haven't read everything else, um, but I will. Um, but in light of the letter from the attorney for Peter Strzok, the government counsel certified that all emails and interlineations have been shown to all the parents for the purposes of, of authenticating uh, what's been um, represented to me as true and accurate. That, I, I tell you, quite frankly, I was floored when I saw the letter from the attorney that there were list alterations in, um, in, a, in an email. Not that we're aware of, Your Honor. I certainly want to respond specifically, but I'd have to, I'd have to see that specifically. And I'm sorry that I didn't uh, right. see that. And I'll give you a chance to respond. I think, you know, for any responses, I think a week is probably a good time. But the question is whether or not someone, some government attorney can certify that all emails and interlineations that have been um, attached and appended to uh, motions to dismiss, et cetera, have been shown to the declarants to, to authenticate because it was very unsettling to see the letter from the attorney uh, for Mr. Strzok telling me that, uh, you know, there appear to be alterations by, by other people other than Mr. Strzok. So I'll, just leave, I'll just leave it at that, but I need a certification from someone uh, at some point. Uh, counsel, uh, Mr. Cole, you made reference to, um, to politics uh, not being the motivating factor here. Um, should the court take into consideration the numerous statements by the president um, on, on, on Twitter feed? And for the record, I wouldn't know how to put anything on a Twitter if my life depended on it. But there are a number of statements attributed to the president criticizing the prosecution of Mr. Flynn. Um, so that's the question. Should the court take those into consideration? And if so, 
um, or the weight or what reason you so that's all been uh, as as you know uh, the communications between the attorney general and the president are are privileged and deliberative but I have consulted with the attorney general about and I am authorized to represent to you that the attorney general's decisions in these cases were not based on any communications with the president they, or the White House, and they weren't based on any of the tweets or the sort of things that you're referencing. But I, I'll further note, as I think your honor actually just adverted to, most of those tweets, they say things like they think the General Flynn's being railroaded, they, it's not even clear what he said is false. None of those things even meet Judge Gleason's own standards. That's not favoritism. That's a view about whether this is a just prosecution or an unjust prosecution. So even if you were to consider that, which I don't think you should, they don't even meet Judge Gleason's own standards. Well, putting aside Judge Gleason, you know, will certainly speak for himself, but putting aside Judge Gleason's view, I mean, these statements are in the public domain. Um, so, So the question is, what way does any should the court give these statements so, by the president by the president of the United States, your chief executive officer? So uh, I'll say two things. The decision here is a decision made by the Department of Justice. The Attorney General's decision wasn't based on the president's statement. So I don't think you should give it weight because it's not actually the basis of the decision. But if you were to consider it, I think it would just only underscore the propriety of this dismissal. Because you have, as you said, the chief executive of the United States agrees, obviously, with the decision and is agreeing for reasons that are not impermissible. They are based on views of whether this is a just prosecution. All right. I've researched that issue recently um, about the uh, about Twitter feeds. I'm sure that um, there, there are courts across the country uh, <laughs> writing on the propriety of, of what weight of any to give it the tweets. Um, so within that same week, if you have some authority you'd like to bring to the court's attention, please, please do so. Because there, there are a number of, of, of tweets associated with comments allegedly made by the president. And, 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 and I would like to know what weight, if any, uh, should the court give to those or should the court just merely disregard them? Um, so I welcome any, any additional input you may have, have in that regard, counsel. Your Honor, Your Honor, may I yeah, just one more point? Um, I think the attorney general himself said that uh, all of the tweets make his job harder. It makes our hard, our job harder too, because it's easy to look at the tweets and think and, and draw correlations that just aren't really true. And that's why I think the further we get away from the facts, the further we get away from what we've learned in this case, the, um, you know, the easier it is to speculate all kinds of things. Uh, I'm telling you, uh, those of us that have looked at the evidence, I was there with Jocelyn Valentine as we, in the last several months, went and looked through the files, the former files in the special counsel's office, notes from people from DOJ, uh, and, and found some many of these documents. That's what drove this decision, ultimately, uh, was a decision that in the end, what was told to the court in the statement of offense, we just couldn't prove in terms of actual evidence. All right. Um, what... How should the court factor into its decision making um, the undisputed fact that that not one attorney from the special counsel's office 
sign uh, on to the motion to dismiss. I recognize Ms. Valentine, as you said, uh, has, has, she's with the U.S. Attorney's Office, if, if I understand correctly. Um, but what should, what inferences, if any, are to be drawn from that, the fact that no FCO attorney signed on to the motion to dismiss, and Mr. Van Grant withdrew shortly before it was filed? I have no understanding why, um, but rather than guess, I'll just ask the question if it can be answered. So I, that, Your Honor, I don't think is a matter that uh, you should give any weight. There's no question here that considered decision of the executive branch and signed by the U.S. attorney. It's been defended by the Solicitor General. It is approved by the Attorney General. Even if you had concerns about whether it reflects improper politicization, the career lawyers in the U.S. Attorney's Office, the most senior lawyer in that office, as well as the career lawyer who's been on the case for the entire time, are all on it. Why any individual lawyer is or is not on it is a matter of internal deliberate brand structure. That is the source of separation of powers harm that the Seventh Circuit in the uh, 2005 case that we said in our briefs said that who, how the United States Attorney's Office structures its affairs, the matter for the Attorney General and the President is not a matter for the federal courts. And in that case, the court actually granted mandamus uh, when questions about those issues were raised. All right, thank you, Counsel. Well, why, why should the court consider Fokker binding? Fokker was the deferred prosecution agreement case. Why should the court consider Fokker binding in this case, but not Amadown? Well, Your Honor, I guess I'd say two things about that. First, Fokker did expressly discuss Rule 48 as part of its analysis, and it had the sentence that uh, I talked to you about earlier, and I'll read it again, which is that the leave of court authority from Rule 48 gives no power to a district court to deny a prosecutor's Rule 48 motion to dismiss charges based on a disagreement with the prosecution's exercise of charging authority. That was an essential element of the reasoning of Fokker, which remember, Fokker reversed the district court for second guessing the prosecutor. Amidown is the opposite. Amidown also- Before we leave Fokker, Fokker was a deferred prosecution agreement case when, when my colleague refused to accept the deferred prosecution agreement. The language you just referred to, wasn't that merely dicta in, 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 the, uh, in the Fokker opinion? No, Your Honor, it was an essential aspect of the reasoning. The Supreme Court has made clear in cases like Seminole Tribe that the holding of the case is not just based on the fact that it's based on the essential legal reasoning. Uh, there, the Seminole Tribe is one of the leading cases for that proposition, Your Honor. And the legal reasoning of Fokker relied heavily on Rule 48. This wasn't some stray sentence in Fokker. There's a whole section of the opinion that talks about Rule 48 and how the limits on Rule 48 are what I just read to you and why those likewise apply on the deferred prosecution agreement context. Amidown, though, is the exact opposite. In Amidown, there too, the Court of Appeals, actually much like in Fokker, reversed the district court and said the district court had gone too far. The language that Judge Gleason has relied on, that really is dicta, because that was talking about situations where maybe you could deny a, rule, a motion, but that wasn't presented in the case, and the court didn't actually affirm a district court for denying a motion. In fact, as I discussed earlier, no appellate court ever in the history of this country has affirmed a substantive denial of an unopposed Rule 48 motion. And of course, Amidown was decided in 1973, 
the very next year, 1974, the Supreme Court in the Nixon decision said the executive branch has the exclusive authority and absolute discretion whether to prosecute a case. Absolute discretion. That is simply irreconcilable with any standard that says you could deny the motion because of favoritism or pretext or anything else. All right. I recognize the government disagrees with Mr. Gleason's recitation of the history of Rule 48A. Um, the question, though, is um, don't the two opinions, Walker and Rinaldi, leave open the possibility that courts may review Rule 48A motions for reasons other than prosecutorial abuse? Your Honor, um, so I don't actually disagree with Judge Gleason's description of the history of Rule 48. I disagree with the inference he draws from that history. It is true that there is evidence that the, the drafters of Rule 48 were, consider, were worried about a specific type of prosecutorial issues, namely rogue individual prosecutors doing things that were on a frolic and detour, whether it's a U.S. attorney out in Montana who gives a break to a, you know, a prominent person out there or an individual prosecutor who's bribed or an individual prosecutor who just wants to take a vacation. None of that, none of that. There is no history that suggests when the executive branch as a whole makes an authoritative decision, when the Attorney General of the United States has decided that a case should end, that and a court can disregard that before the case continues. There is no history of that. There's no case that's ever done it. All right. All right, thank you. I want to shift gears, counsel. Um, um, I'm going to focus on uh, Mr. Gleason. Uh, he's been very patient. I see he's walking around now at his desk. Uh, I don't <laughs> want him to be impatient, so I'm going to give him some time. Um, uh, Mr. Gleason, good afternoon, sir. On what authority could the court deny the motion without prejudice? Uh, Your Honor, you have discretion to do that. It's it's, an, it's certainly an oddity and one of the one of the many distinctive, unusual, really unprecedented, although you, you know the Ted Stevens case certainly better than I do. But when the government makes a motion under Rule 48A to dismiss a case, the default relief is always dismissal without prejudice. I think you can canvass government motions. Uh, to dismiss, and you're not going to find one with the possible exception of Ted Stevens' case you mentioned earlier, where they seek to have a dismissal with prejudice. So it's it's one of the many. And, and boy, Judge, I'm going to answer your questions, but I have a I have a lot to say, and if I don't say so myself, it really needs to be said, and I'll be giving me an opportunity later. But on this point, the uh, the off-the-rack default rule is a Rule 48 motion is when it's granted, is granted without prejudice. Uh, here, the government has asked for more. It's in keeping with the fact that the government has kind of erected an entire different set of legal rules and factual concerns solely for the case against Michael Flynn. But from my perspective as amicus, I think, you know, uh, the academic question as to whether the without prejudice off the rack default relief ought to be granted here is entirely that. It's 
without prejudice. We'll say this, you know, there is a charge bargain. Court pointed out there's the FARA uh, case, and there's also multiple false statements. You know, the conversations with Kislyak, uh, there were two separate sets of conversations, the 22nd and 23rd of December involving the uh, Russia's position on the Israeli settlements and the, the UN resolution there, and then the conversations on the 29th and the 31st regarding uh, the uh, President Obama's sanctions and the and the requested Russian response to those. Those are separate units of prosecution. So it's, it's not as though there's not plenty at stake. There's plenty at stake. The uh, if the government's motion were to be granted pursuant to the typical rule, and as this court knows, I have asked, I have suggested to this court in connection with the potential perjury prosecution, you should do, you should treat this case like you treat any other. There's a lot of heat, not much light, a lot of a blizzard of things that I'd like to address a little bit later, but it's a federal criminal case in a federal courtroom. It should be treated like any other. So uh, in, in that regard, the, if you grant the motion, the motion should be granted without prejudice. But I don't really feel like I, as amicus, have a, a dog in that race. All right. Let me ask you this. You've not recommended um, that the court preside over an evidentiary hearing. Um, am I correct in saying then that I, – actually, I don't, want to, I don't want to speak to you. Uh, that that's, you did not make that request, and, and what's the principal reason for that? Is the record sufficient to enable the court to rule as a matter of law? Yes, you don't need one, because part of your job under Amidown, which was not overruled sub silentio by Fokker, I'll get to that later if the court will allow me to, but part of your job is to ask for the reasons, to not be a representative, ask for the reasons and the factual basis for the reasons. And they have to be the real reasons. And these reasons are so patently perpetual that the government feels the need to keep coming up with more of them. Sometimes in another setting, it might be the need to have a factual hearing to determine pretext, but here it jumps off the record of the case. Uh, if the court were to deny, uh, Mr. Gleason, the, um, the, the government's motion, um, would the next logical step be to to address the motion to withdraw? Yes, you please. All right, and that motion is. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. No, no, no. You go right ahead. No. Yeah, I'd like to address that because I just heard. I can't believe some of the things I'm hearing, and I'll tell you, Judge, you don't know. Me. I'm not prone to hyperbole. I can't believe some of the things I'm hearing. Of course, it's the case that this court would never accept a guilty plea from someone who claims that he's innocent. Of course, that's the case. That's not what's happened here. What's happened here is this defendant, knowingly and voluntarily and in the face of evidence that proves his guilt every which way, pled guilty not once, but twice. And People who don't hang around federal courtrooms don't really get just how important it is to enter a plea of guilty. They don't get the formalities required by Rule 11. They don't get the solemnity 
of a guilty plea in federal court. And those things, all of that happens for a reason. People can't plead guilty and then show up for sentencing as this defendant did on December 18th, 2018, and see how the wind is blowing. Hear the court say, not for nothing, I'm from Brooklyn, not for nothing, but this crime was committed in the West Wing. And get a feel for how the wind is blowing and then say, whoa, I have a change of heart. And seek to withdraw a guilty plea that was entered and accepted twice. That it didn't appoint me to argue against the motion to withdraw the plea. But that motion has no merit. Right. Um, what, what about the tweets? But you, you've made you've devoted a lot of um, uh, time and effort to um, bringing to the court's attention these tweets attributed to the allegedly attributed to the, to the president. What weight, if any, should the court give to um, that material? You should give a lot of weight to that material. And if I could address that briefly, you know, the your job, Judge, on the second prong of our motion, you know, we've, we've told you that uh, we've advocated that you deny this motion to dismiss the case. And one reason is you have to get the right reasons, the real reasons, and you haven't. But a second and completely independent for our motion, for our opposition to the motion, rather, is that the uh, it's a gross abuse of prosecutorial discretion. And in that regard, there's a couple of buckets of um, clear evidence in the record of why you don't need a hearing. One of them happens to be all the all the pretexts that keep coming over the transom. Honest to goodness, I feel like taking a break and looking at the docket sheet to see if another supplemental submission has been made with yet another reason because when we point out the hollowness of materiality or an inability to prove falsity when a defendant pled guilty as many times as this defendant. You know, we proved the textual nature of the of the ostensible reasons advanced, and you just get some additional reasons. And I, I want to come back to that later if I can. But the separate, the second ground, the the first bucket of evidence is exactly that. It's like a, it's almost, Judge, you're familiar with criminal cases and the notion of consciousness of guilt. You know, the, the fact that you get so much pretext is a basis for you to draw the inference that there's a real reason that's not legitimate that they don't want to share with you. And these tweets are the second bucket. The, the actions of the president and the statements of the attorney general himself constitute more direct evidence that men as a friend in high places, the highest possible place, wants DOJ to scuttle this case. And if I can just touch briefly on some of this evidence. Flynn's an early advisor. I'm going to get to the tweets in a second, although I promise you there are more than 100 tweets and retweets by the President of the United States about this case. I promise you I'm not going to go through all of them. Flynn's an early advisor and crucial political ally of the President during the last presidential election campaign. From the outset of the case, in the tweets 
and in the media, the president has engaged in a running public commentary about it through media and on Twitter. We've learned here today he's consulting with defense counsel. He's closely following the proceedings. He's personally invested in ensuring that this prosecution ends. And he has a deep animosity toward those who investigated and prosecuted Flynn before the about case happened in the Justice Department. As I say, there's literally, literally hundreds of tweets and retweets. But let me just highlight a couple. On March 31, 2017, the president tweeted that the investigation that gave rise to a charge to which this defendant admitted his guilt was a witch hunt of historic proportion. In a June 2018 interview, the president waded into the facts. Maybe he didn't lie, the president said, even though by then Flynn had admitted his guilt in writing under penalty of perjury and under oath in open court before one of your colleagues. The next month, the president wrote, it's a shame that the FBI didn't think he was lying, a false and also legally irrelevant trope that later appeared in the government's own papers. When Flynn came into your courtroom for sentencing on December 18, 2018, the president tweeted, good luck. And in March of this year, he tweeted that he was strongly considering a full pardon. Then in late April, about a week before the government filed its, its instant motion to dismiss this case, President Mark, excuse me, the president's remarks got uglier. Called the case a scam. That Flynn had been tormented and persecuted by dirty, filthy cops at the top of the FBI, as well as certain news outlets. He also advanced another false narrative. Governments adopted in its motion to dismiss that the agents were trying to force Flynn into a position where they could get him to lie. They went to Flynn's office with the express intention of nudging him into telling, of reminding him of the very words he used in his conversations with Kislyak. At one point, Flynn said to them, a good reminder. So this notion that they're putting aside the fact that there's no other case in America where DOJ suggested some kind of defense to a false statements case, let alone a reason to dismiss one, that uh, that the, the person is put in a position where the FBI knows he will lie and they want him to lie. That's not even what happened here. And judge, you know, these case-specific communications like President Trump, were made against a backdrop of an open disdain on his part for the independence of the Justice Department. Every presidency since Watergate has respected the need for DOJ independence, FBI independence from the president, but not this president. In an interview with the New York Times in December of 2017, he said he has, quote, the absolute right to do what I want to do with the Justice Department, close quote. The Attorney General himself said publicly just seven months ago that the President's public statements and tweets about pending cases, quote, make it impossible to do his job. 
the end of the quote, meaning the attorney general's job, and quote, to assure the courts and the prosecutors in the department that we're doing our work with integrity. As, th as this court showed about an hour ago, some things are so important, they bear repetition, and this is one. This is the Attorney General of the United States who said in an interview with ABC News, an exclusive interview with ABC News, February 13, 2020, that the President's public statements and tweets have made it impossible for the Department to assure courts like you that they're doing their job with integrity. We pointed this out. The government doesn't disagree with any of this. It can't. Didn't even mention the president's personal lobbying for Flynn or his virulent and ad hominem attacks on those who previously involved in the prosecution or the attorney general's own admission that the president's interference with the work of the Justice Department has made it impossible to assure courts that DOJ is doing his work with integrity. So based entirely on evidence that's already in the public view, really the only coherent explanation for the government's exceedingly irregular motion creating standards of materiality that they fight in every other case that they apply to the president's friend, the only inference you can draw is that the Justice Department has done exactly what the Attorney General said was the danger of these tweets, which is a yield to the president's pressure. All right. Um, I had a number of other questions, uh, Mr. Gleason, Governor Council, and Ms. Powell. Um, I, I know everyone wants to supplement the record. I know you've been preparing for the argument, so let me just afford uh, each attorney an opportunity to about uh, separation of powers. And there was a telling uh, piece of one of go. the comments made by government counsel earlier. Now, the argument about your authority to deny this motion, an authority that adheres in the text of Rule 48A, uh, offending the separation of powers doesn't work at all. And it doesn't work because it's, it's blind to the context in which this court is acting. It's absolutely true, Judge Sullivan, that the executive has a power that is unreviewable, at least in a court of law, not to bring charges, criminal charges, at all. And it's also pr true that the president has a power that's reviewable only in the court of public opinion to pardon or grant clemency. But neither of those situations creates any risk of tarnishing the integrity of your branch, of the third branch of government. This case is different because the government chose to lodge a criminal case in your Article III court. Now, let me hasten to add, that doesn't mean that the executive's prophecy when it comes to charging decision goes away because it brought the charge. It doesn't mean that. The primacy doesn't go away. Decisions to dismiss pending criminal charges also lie squarely in the prosecutor's discretion. And I concede this, and I'm, I think it's an essential part of our, our tripartite our, you know, system of government. Government's entitled to a strong presumption of regularity when it makes a motion to dismiss. 
of both Amidon and Fokker. Separation of power, powers principles are not offended when a court's faced with clear evidence that prosecutors have failed to perform their duties in good faith. There is uh, deference to be accorded. The executive was line deference. There's a presumption of regularity, but it's not a presumption that can't be rebutted. And the evidence that prosecutors are acting in bad faith, that they're abusing their power, pierces the presumption of regularity. And this court is free to deny leave under Rule 48 to vindicate fundamental judicial interests and related public interests. Fokker, I embrace Fokker. I don't have to run from Fokker. There's no sense in which Fokker, which cites Amadown approvingly, overrule. Fokker is, you, you understand it correctly, of course, Your Honor. Fokker is, it is dicta. Case involves, as you know, a deferred prosecution agreement and the exclusion of time under the Speedy Trial Act. And there's language in there, including the language read by my adversary that relates to the executive's primacy. But the, the case cites Amidon approvingly. It makes clear that if there's clear evidence that the prosecutor is acting inappropriately, the presumption of regularity disappears. This court said in Amidon, the requirement of judicial approval entitles the court to obtain and evaluate the prosecutor's decisions. And Walker left that untouched. It's dicta, leaves it untouched. There's other parts of the opinion that have been read to you. The suggests respectfully, you read Parker as a whole. The one thing it adds, and again, I embrace it, is an emphasis on the executive's privacy in determining not only whether to charge, but in determining whether to dismiss a charge once brought. The one fundamental difference that Parker does not do anything to eviscerate is whereas there is an unqualified power used not to charge. Once that power is exercised, the power to dismiss is qualified. And, you know, I, I think it is important to, uh, to address the history of Rule 48. It's a, uh, it was, to my mind, uh, unfairly denigrated by my adversary a minute ago. See, it's an important part of my argument, Judge, and I think it's an important part of your understanding of what the legal court language means to see where it came from. We know where it came from. Back in the 1920s, there was that federal tax collector out in Missoula, Montana, his name was Franklin Woody. He's indicted on an embezzlement charge but he wasn't an ordinary defendant, just like this case. His grandfather was the Missoula's first mayor and later a judge. His dad was a friend of the governor. First, the first tell in that case was a warrant issued, but the marshal claimed that he couldn't find Woody. And the government moved to dismiss the case. And because at that time, its power to do so was unreviewable, it said out loud, one of its reasons was the defendant was from a prominent family. It added that the government didn't want to spoil his future career as a lawyer. 
made the district judge extremely uneasy. He said what the government was doing, by the way, district judge said nothing about a rogue prosecutor, or this is not the official position of the Department of Justice. I encourage you to read that opinion. It's at 2 F. 2nd, 262, District of Montana, 1924. What the district judge actually said is that what the government was doing fueled the common criticism that, quote, the criminal law is for none but poor, friendless, and uninfluential, close quote. Few things are more pernicious, that judge went on to say, than the disparate treatment of defendants who have friends in high places. And he mentioned specifically how it harmed the court itself. But no leave of court was necessary, so we couldn't prevent it. He went on to complain about the fact that the law didn't even report the prosecutor to give a reason for the dismissal. But because he had to, he reluctantly granted the motion, but good for him. He wrote that opinion. He followed the law, but wrote the opinion complaining about it. And that's one of the ways the law changed, Judge Sullivan. Others made similar complaints. And then in 1941, the Supreme Court appointed an advisory committee to create rules of criminal procedure. The committee's initial proposed rule for the rule dealt only with one of the problems that that judge mentioned. It required that prosecutors only offer a statement of reasons for the dismissal. The Supreme Court sent it back with a suggestion, cited a case that said that the court reviews errors of law even when the government confesses error. So it's in fact with a suggestion, give a role for the, for the judges in policing the dismissal of criminal charges. But the advisory committee didn't get the hint, sent back a final rule that still only required a statement of reasons. So the Supreme Court itself rewrote the rule, put the leave of court requirement in it. At that language that is at the heart of today's dispute. So the government's claim that the language exists just to allow judges to protect criminal defendants from prosecutorial harassment is not just countertextual. You can't find that text of the rule, of course. And it's not only lacking in historical support, but the history of this rule, of this leave of court language, flatly refutes the reason this language put into the rule was precisely to empower courts in the, in the rare case, admittedly rare case, like the one presented before you today, in which prosecutors have abused their discretion to have abused their, their, their uh, really enormous power to dismiss the case. It's a rich, you know, it's not for nothing, but this hasn't happened in the, in the well more than half a century since, since Rule uh, 48A was promulgated. But so the executive has that unreviewable power before they come into your courtroom. They have the unreviewable power on the back end one day. You know, if the executive wants to take Michael Flynn off the hook, he can pardon him. But if that's that, it doesn't inextricably bind up this court, this judge, in the unseemly desire 
to scuttle a case simply because the defendant is a friend and ally of the president of the United States. The, uh, sorry, Judge, but I'm, to the extent I'm fumbling with my papers, uh, the good news is I'm streamlining the argument in light of what's already come before us. No, no, that's fine. Take your time, counsel. Thank you. The requirement that the government explain its reasons, which is the direction that Amazon gives to this court, is critical. If we were allowed to hide behind an, op an opaque claim that dismissal is in the public interest, I'm sorry. It defeats the purpose. Mr. Gleason, I'm sorry. That's okay. I can't. If I overlook the court reporter, she'll leave the courtroom. So we're going to have to take a 15-minute recess. I have to, I have to uh, keep peace with everyone in the courtroom. I'm sorry if I overlooked the court reporter. She, she is the most important person in the courtroom, I can tell you that. We'll take a 15-minute recess. Okay, if somebody could fill me in, I just went up to throw some water on my face, and now I come back and the audio is gone. So did they say they were taking a break or something, guys? If you can fill me in on that. What was the last thing you guys heard? A 15-minute break. <laughs> Debate arena for the very first time. Tonight's one-on-one -on -one matchup in Cleveland is one of the last chances the candidates have to sway undecided voters. White House Press Secretary Kaylee McEnany joins us now. Kaylee, good morning and great to good see morning. you. I know it has been an incredibly busy few days for you and for the White House and for the president. How's the president preparing this morning for the big night? Yeah, the president has had a few prep sessions with Mayor Rudy Giuliani, Governor Chris Christie. Um, this morning, he'll be making his way out over to Ohio here in the afternoon, uh, getting ready those last minute preparations. But really what the president does is prepare each and every day when he takes grueling questions from the White House press corps. Uh, he is the most pre transparent president in history, uh, and he's had more preparation than anyone just on the day to day basis of doing his briefings, his gaggles and other forms of questioning. You mentioned prepping with Rudy. Giuliani. He was on Fox News earlier today. He was asked by one of our hosts about about the difference between prepping to debate Joe Biden versus prepping to debate Hillary Clinton back in 2016. And here's how he answered. First of all, there's a difference between debating a man and a woman. Uh, I think Biden is a nasty enough guy that you don't have to worry about, you know, not being uh, being too careful with him. I mean, he said terrible things about the president. So the president has every right to take his head off if he wants. Kaylee, what should that tell us about what we may see in, as far as strategy on the part of the president tonight? Yeah, I think those are some very good stylistic points, but I also think you're going to see a lot of contrast. Look, we've had eight years of Obama-Biden, and when you look back, there is a very definitive contrast between health care premiums going up, drug prices going up, choice going down. President Trump came in, reversed all of that, bringing premiums down, drug prices down for the first time in 50 years, more choice to the market. You had the slowest economic recovery since World War II under Obama-Biden, followed by historic lows in unemployment, a V-shaped recovery. Recovery. On each and every issue, there's a point-by-point -point contrast and a clear definitive choice the American people have to make. And I think they'll recognize uh, the president's accomplishments this evening. You know, everybody's got their own expectations for what we might see tonight. Is it the president's intention to have a cordial, respectful debate with Joe Biden? Or is it going to be the food fight that many have predicted? 
The president wants a substantive back and forth because he has the truth and the facts on his side. I'm sure uh, the former vice president doesn't want to be talking about his record with the VA, which was in shambles that the president reversed, giving good health care to our veterans. I'm sure he doesn't want to talk about the dwindling down of the military with sequestration and President Trump, a historic investment in our military. I'm sure he doesn't want to talk about the chaos on the world stage, followed by President Trump bringing two Middle East peace deals, the only president to have that accomplishment. Facts are on our side. The president wants a jousting back and forth with substantive contrast. Is is that is that the case? Because what we've heard from the president leading up to this, Kaylee, is suggestions of cognitive decline on the part of Joe Biden. Rudy Giuliani, who's prepping the president for the debate, suggesting that he's on Adderall, some sort of drugs this morning. The president's demanded a drug test to the debate commission and even have the debate. They've declined that, of course. So why is the president continuing down that path, Kaylee? Does he believe that it will help him? Because that's a very fair question that the president brings up. The American voters deserve to know whether they have a president who is equipped to lead, uh, who has the ability to go long days. I've been with the president where he's up and at it early in the morning, um, already up making phone calls with world leaders going until after midnight. This president works around the clock. Mm. It's hard for his staff to even keep up with him. It's an important quality in a president. It's one I can tell you with a surety that this president has. There, of course, is this reporting by the New York Times, the Times on the president's tax returns. And there is a reminder of this moment when President Trump debated Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election. And President Trump then talked about paying zero taxes. Listen. The only years that anybody's ever seen were a couple of years when he had to turn them over to state authorities when he was trying to get a casino license. And they showed he didn't pay any federal income tax. So that makes if me he's smart. Paid so now with the New York Times reporting, obviously this could come up on the debate stage. Does this change things for the Trump campaign just days now, weeks now from Election Day? No, because we've seen these smears from the New York Times before. They dropped a similar piece days before the debate in 2016. Uh, the president has paid tens of millions of dollars in taxes um, in the decade leading up to him declaring his candidacy and millions after. He is the only the only president to have donated his salary, 1.4 million, that amount uh, to the American people, back to the American Treasury. Uh, he works for free. His money goes to the U.S. Treasury. Uh, the real questions are really, though, for Hunter Biden. We've seen that Senate report who got $3.5 million from the Moscow mayor's mm. wife. President Trump pays the U.S. Treasury. Russia pays Hunter Biden. There is obviously news also as far as this moving forward that Kevin Brady, uh, the Republican from Texas, ranking member on the House Ways and Means Committee, is launching a criminal investigation into the leaking of that by the New York Times, saying to ensure every American is protected against the illegal release of their tax returns for political reasons. I'm calling for an investigation of the source and to prosecute if the law was broken. Is the president involved with pressing for a criminal investigation now of the leaking of those taxes? No, the president um, hasn't pressed for that. But look, that is a fair investigation to have. We've seen the politicization of taxes before. Uh, we've seen the IRS targeting Tea Party groups. Um, and, and it's an unacceptable proposition for that to happen. Also unacceptable for these documents of the president to leak illegally to The New York Times, who then publishes the information. So it's an important investigation. Final question, Kaylee. If the president focused on any one big topic, what is he preparing the most on for the debate tonight, would you say? 
Yeah, he's prepared on all of the topics, um, but the economy is big. Look, a V-shaped recovery, what we're seeing exceeding CBO expectations and jobs reports, only a businessman like President Trump could make that possible. Kaylee McEnany joining us from the White House. Appreciate your time this morning, Kaylee. Thank you. Thank you, Sandra. All right. Cleveland, Ohio tonight as President Trump and Joe Biden are set to face off in the first presidential debate of 2020. The debate will be unlike any other in history due to the COVID-19 pandemic, of course, with an audience of less than 100 people. Coronavirus set to be one of the six major topics for the debate, selected by moderator and Fox News host Chris Wallace. Joining me right now is Fox News contributor and former economic advisor to President Obama, Robert Wolf. Robert, it is great to have you tonight. And of course, it's going to be this morning and it's going to be an exciting exciting night. What do you want to see from Joe Biden? How can Joe Biden come out a winner from your standpoint? You know, it's interesting. I don't think it's necessarily about winning and losing. The differences are so stark. It's hard to say that these guys are going to actually be competing in some ways on the same stage. Every issue they have is just so different um, where they come out, whether it's taxes, health care. My view is there's going to be, I don't know, 100 million people watching but there's only 6% of undecided voters. That's down from 16% in 2016. And in my opinion, what Joe Biden has to do is make sure that he clearly states what his, what his economic policy is, what his healthcare policy is, but more importantly, just motivates his base that he's the best for the future, because that's who you're speaking to today. You're speaking to the 100 million people, but really you're almost speaking to making sure you get your base out to vote, because there's just, not that many undecided voters anymore. Robert, how is he going to make the case that fixing the economy involves raising taxes by $4 trillion? Yeah, so two things. One, Maria, you and I have been uh, looking at these numbers for, for many, many years. And we look at debt and we look at growth. Moody Analytics and the Wharton Research Center both said that President Biden's plan, Vice President Biden's plan is much better than President Trump's plan. It would add jobs and it would add growth and it would reduce debt. Those are two independent studies that came out in the last week. Remember, you're talking about adding four trillion debt, but you're also talking about adding many trillion in growth. His infrastructure plan, which is his number one priority, is much more uh, broad and deep than where I would say President Trump is, which is all about cutting taxes which we see in this economic time is not the way to be, get jobs back. Uh, you know, payroll tax I gotta tell cut, you, he's going he's to have, to have to communicate that because you just said infrastructure is his top priority. I got to tell you, I haven't heard one word out of Joe Biden about infrastructure. Not a piece. Let me get Steve Forbes in here because, Steve, you've got to find okay. out how you're going to actually communicate some of these plans to make the case that these are going to be good for the economy. Maria, if I can just well, add, his Build Back Better plan is a $2 trillion infrastructure plan. So I just want to make sure that's his biggest plan. Yeah, but I he didn't hasn't know that. really high, high, Go ahead, Steve. Yeah, he hasn't highlighted it yet. And uh, Robert, uh, when, when have massive tax increases led to uh, great economic growth? It didn't in the 70s. It hurt Bill Clinton in the first two years, helped lead to the loss of uh, Congress for the Republicans for the first time in decades in 94. You look at blue states versus red states, blue states with high taxes have been doing less well in recent years than red states with lower taxes. 
What's the case for that higher taxes are suddenly going to work with an economy that's barely recovered? It's now just getting its win back from the lockdowns from the COVID-19 crisis. Steve, like anything, all spending is fungible here, right? What, the way you're talking about is capital gains, going, uh, reducing capital gains. That's not a jobs plan. That is not putting jobs back. We're seeing it right now. That, that's not a, it doesn't help. Yes, it helps the stock market, which is 87% owned by, you know, the, the top wealthiest people in the world. That's not helping industrial America bring back jobs. I would say 87%? number two. 87% capital gains tax 87%? rate didn't work in the 1970s. Yeah, 87% of the stock market gains have been I don't think gained. the stock, the stock yeah, market is going to benefit many more, people. many more people because you've got pension funds, about, 401ks, it, I mean, individual investors, 50%. all invested in the stock market. So I don't think you could say that the stock but market gains are only for the rich, equally. Robert. You know that. The wealthier has much more stock than the, the less wealthy. You're not. I'm not talking about how many people are in the stock market. We're talking about how what percent control the stock market. Big difference between the two. But uh, where we're in terms. Yeah, microphone didn't want to work. There is a massive difference between who's uh, playing the stock market and who has a cut in it. Remember, Nancy Pelosi has, uh, you know, the majority of Visa stock, right? The Visa card stock. She has it. Now, while we're waiting for the Flynn hearing to start again, I thought we could play that clip with uh, Rick Grinnell talking about documents that no one's showing. Acting Director of National Intelligence, he's former Ambassador Rick Grinnell. It's great to see you back on, Rick. Good to see you. You know, Senator Lindsey Graham said more, quote, damning, it's good to see you, more, quote, damning government documents will soon be declassified in the FBI's botched Trump Russia probe, maybe the Flynn probe. What's the next shoe to drop? Such a good question, Elizabeth. Uh, you know, I'm not sure exactly what comes next, but there's plenty there. There's There are many reports many letters, uh, many pieces of information, which really just point to uh, the very early days of how this investigation was developed. The many warning signs were ignored. And I think that's where many people have trouble is that if we would have been able to see the full package of the information, um, instead of having it uh, really edited down and and pushed into a direction that the head of the FBI clearly wanted it to go in, uh, I think most people would have come to the same conclusion that Russian propaganda from the beginning had infiltrated into the Steele dossier. And so uh, the warning signs were there, and now we're only seeing them later on. We've got to fix this problem. We've got to make sure that government isn't weaponized. And then we see, you know, just yesterday, uh, again now, the president's individual taxes are released. And this is yet another example of how bureaucrats inside Washington can weaponize government against the people that they don't like. It's very scary for every single person. Yeah. If one of your enemies starts working inside the government, they're going to use the tools of government against you, and there's nothing you can do about it. This has got to get cleaned up. You know, Senator Chuck Schumer, remember in early January 2017, said 
The intelligence community can get you every which way from Sunday. You know, they act like accusations are tantamount to a conviction. That's a feel of what went on, that the Obama administration used the FBI and intelligence forces against an opposition campaign based on Russian disinformation financed by partially, mostly largely financed by the DNC and the Hillary Clinton campaign, and that the FBI and investigated a Russian spy who was a source for the anti-Trump Steele dossier. I mean, I don't think anybody could have written this. This is, uh, you know, fact is stranger than fiction. Well, let's also remember that uh, bureaucrats in Washington don't have the power to just launch into many of these uh, investigations, especially investigations that take a long time, unless their superiors know about it and approve it, or their superiors knowingly look the other way. And I think that's what we got to get to the bottom of. There's no question that there were recommendations to drop this Michael Flynn case. And then there was a meeting at the White House that Joe Biden attended and Susan Rice and others. And somehow after that meeting, there seemed to be a new vigor to go after uh, Flynn and others. And so I, I think it's pretty clear that the evidence shows that higher-ups became very political in trying to go after the Trump team. And, and let's be very honest, there's a big cry now about a peaceful transition of power from the media elites and from the left, I saying, once again, they're sure that their candidate is going to win, and so they want to know, are we going to have a peaceful transition of power? Let me just be very clear. Donald Trump won in 2016, and there was not a peaceful transition of power. The meetings and the schedules show that the intensity against Donald Trump and his team got more intense, got hotter as soon as there was uh, an election uh, finish and we knew who was moving into the White House. Yeah. And at that point in time, should the FBI have stopped their Trump-Russia probe and have should they have stopped the Flynn probe because we've got newly revealed FBI text messages in and around the time of that January 5th, 2017 Obama briefing with Obama, Susan Rice, Joe Biden, uh, FBI text messages behind the scenes saying it was a madhouse. Officials are scrambling, groping for information to support their theories that they all went and bought personal professional liability insurance, fearing they could be sued over the misconduct going on behind the scenes at the FBI. We have former FBI official, uh, you know, uh, William Barrett saying there was an attitude, just get Trump, that this was, a, you know, a big, powerful investigation that they wanted to be in on to get a big scalp to, you know, stick to the wall. Uh, and, you know, that this was uh, be a, you know, a feather in their cap to do something like this when they weren't letting the facts and the evidence take them where the, take them to the conclusion. Instead, they had a theory and they were trying to shoehorn the facts into their theory. So do you think they should have stopped the Trump Russia probe, stopped the Flynn probe at that moment in December 2016? Yes, the people who were looking at the information in full recommended that they stop it. This should have been stopped. And let me also be very clear. The FBI is not the only agency yes, that had red flags okay, and that we'll had individuals stepping forward to say. I like how they say this is the government. The government's not a person. That's what makes this so terrifying. Yes, this is the government. Uh -huh. uh, Mr. Cole, can you do me a favor? Uh, when you speak, can you try to get a little closer to the uh, microphone of the court, court reporter out? Yeah, the court reporter is probably having a nervous breakdown. Thank you very much. 
oh, I'm sure some of my older viewers will appreciate this. Since we're not supposed to talk about this particular letter of the alphabet, I brought out Mr. Q from the alphabet people straight out of the 1970s. If anybody remembers growing up with these, I always liked Mr. M with a munching mouth. Anyway, God, this is a real, this is a real marathon, guys. Uh, according to my data, I've been live for three hours, 58 minutes, and 55 seconds. All right, guys, we're back. We started early. Uh, we've had a couple of recesses. Um, everyone's pleadings have been um, excellent. And, and, and this, this is a motion that the, the defendant doesn't oppose. Um, so I'm going to give Mr. Gleason uh, a few more minutes. But maybe you can talk about discretion. Uh, where, does it, where, does it, where does it start and where does it end? I mean, I have some discretion. I think the government can see that I have some discretion. But I'll, I'll let you know, Mr. Cole uh, and his colleagues address that. Um, but uh, it's, it's late in the day. A lot of my questions have been answered um, and the pleadings address the other questions I have. But let me just uh, give Mr. Cleason a few more minutes and I'll hear from, um, <clears throat> I'll hear from Ms. Powell. I just have four questions to ask her and I'll give her a chance to, without being repetitive, uh, making additional brief arguments she wishes to make. Mr. Gleason. Yes, Judge. I, I, you know, I was going to say, by taking off 15 minutes, I think I shortened my remarks by more than 15 minutes. But Great. You just shortened them even further. That's, that's so fine. I understand you. That, that's fine. And, and, you know, originally when we started, because there were so many issues in this case, and because everyone had done an absolutely excellent job of wrestling with those issues, I thought uh, I, I might save a lot of time by uh, focusing on the court's understanding because if I'm wrong about something, then I want someone to tell me that I'm wrong. So I don't regret having done that. Um, I think I've got a really good grasp on the issues in the case and I understand everyone's position. And I know that counsel have prepared uh, your moot court proceedings to, to make presentations. And I don't want to deprive you of that opportunity. So go, go right ahead, Mr. Gleason. Okay, I hear you, Judge. Um, when we broke, I, I was about to emphasize how critical it is that the government explain its reasons. And I don't, I don't mean to uh, not answer directly the question that you posed to me. I do want to come back to, to uh, some discussion of the government's ostensible reasons. Sure for dismissing the case. But when it comes to your, your discretion, you know, one of the, one of the ways I, I found attractive to characterize your authority under Rule 48 is what was said by the Fifth Circuit in the Cowan case, it's cited in our briefs, which says that what Rule 48 did was give district judges the power to check and that's really what this is. You know, you have authority because there's an independent interest in the judicial branch not to be, not to become an instrument, not to feel the same queasiness that judge felt 93 years ago in Montana, where you have become an instrument of unseemly bad faith conduct by the government. Conduct that Second Circuit in the HSPC case. Um, uh, excuse me, Mr. Gleason. This is uh, Marco. Can you give 
parties can you do me a favor and mute your phones and your um, audio devices when you're not speaking for us, please? Thank you very much. Okay. Got it. Um, Thank you. you know, so the, the heart of the reason you have the discretion is notwithstanding the privacy of the executive branch when it comes to the determination to dismiss the case, it's a qualified right, and it's qualified because when it does so in circumstances like the one presented before you, Judge Sullivan, it erodes people's confidence in the judicial branch to see you become an instrument of this kind of behavior. The, the reason for the requirement that the government not only state reasons, but, but provide factual basis for the reasons is because if they were able to hide behind an opaque claim that dismissals in the public interest, it would defeat the purpose of the leave of court requirement. I mean, the incantation alone would send you right back to the rubber stamp days that the Supreme Court decided judges would no longer have to live in. And it would deprive you of the opportunity, the obligation that Amadown gives to you and Fokker doesn't touch to, to defer to the, the government's stated reasons, but not defer blindly and examine them. So, you know, when the power was unchecked, as the, you know, the Cowan court says, this is a power to check power. When it was unchecked, the prosecutor, if she chose to, or he chose to, could say to the judge, squirm all you want about being the instrument of our unseemly conduct but just grant the motion because you have to, because the defendant has a friend in a high place. But Rule 48 changed that. And now, the, so the, obviously, the incentive to act on pretext in unseemly circumstances like that was created by Rule uh, 48 itself. Now, what I want to do is turn to exactly what's happening here. And, Judge, I'd like you to give me, it's not that, it's not that long. Sure. I would like to walk through the stated basis for this motion as made, and then I'm just going to talk briefly about the stones to which the government has jumped midstream because the stated basis hold no water at all, and then I'll sum up very briefly. The um, Let me start with materiality. The, the government... To back up, Flynn was interviewed by the FBI, and it was conducting an investigation, Judge, into possible coordination between Trump campaign officials and the Russian government. Flynn was a campaign advisor. He had traveled to and business ties with Russia. And just a month earlier, a month prior to this interview in which he made his false statements, he had inappropriate back-channel requests that he made of the Russian ambassador. When the FBI repeatedly asked him about those communications, he lied. That is, uh, I'm a former prosecutor, you've been around the courtroom a long time, that's about as straightforward a case of materiality as this court will ever see. Under the actual law, not the standards the government has put forth just for Michael Flynn, the test is objective, it's statements, false statements material, 
if it has a natural tendency to influence or is capable of influencing either a discrete decision or other function of the agency to you look and I'm only gonna, I've curtailed this quite a bit, Your Honor, since your summary. You look at the qualities of the false statement and ask whether they're capable of affecting, of affecting the general function of the agency uh, that the agency is performing. Flynn's lives not only potentially affected, but actually affected according to the government itself. In prior iterations, in this case, the course of the FBI's investigation, it, earlier submissions by the government stated they were, quote, absolutely material, close quote, because they prevented the FBI from learning why his communications with Kislyak occurred. They raised questions about why the defendant would lie to the FBI about those communications and fundamentally influenced the FBI's investigative activity going forward. The government itself said that, and the court agreed with it in your ruling back last December. And how could you not? To, to put this very succinctly and very bluntly, pursuant to an active investigation into whether Trump campaign officials coordinated activities with the government of Russia, one of those officials lied to the FBI about coordinating activities with the government of Russia. The contortions the government is engaged in to contradict its own filings are not pretty. When was the last time, Judge Sullivan, you had a case where the DOJ took the position that a lack of predication for an investigation mattered even in the slightest in a false statements case, let alone warranted dismissal of the case. For one thing, the premise is just false. Predication is never a prerequisite for the FBI to conduct the kind of voluntary interview that happened in this case. But even if it were, I bet you've heard I did. Violation of internal guidelines never gives rise to any rights on the part of the defendant. We pointed that out in writing, and the government's silence in that respect is deafening. It's jettisoned any reliance on what it previously characterized to you as a critical predication threshold on the backbone of the original motion, now it's gone, like a red flag for pretext. The government also relies on a draft memo that would have closed Crossfire Razor, the Flynn-specific investigation under the Crossfire Hurricane umbrella. Because of Flynn's subsequent crimes, the Crossfire Razor was not closed. But honestly, Judge, whoever heard of such a memo mattering even to a defendant, let alone to the government, let alone becoming a basis for dismissing a case after the defendant has twice pled guilty. And since when does it matter if the investigation, the, uh, sorry, and since when does it matter that, that uh, the point in the investigation, the FBI classified the investigation as criminal or counterintelligence, all of these administrative things, meaningless administrative things, if it weren't such a, a blow to the rule of law, the government's odd disclosure of them 
these administrative tidbits and acting like they were some kind of smoking gun would be laughable. They never come up in any other case. Materiality is not complicated. Supreme Court says in the Gordon case, what statement was made? What decision was the agency trying to make? And how, in general, could the former affect the latter? The answer to each of these questions is so clear and entirely unaffected by the irrelevant arguments made by the government. One last thing about materiality, and it's the most troubling, is they've been adopted just to help this one defendant. Suppose you had another defendant in another false statement case stand in your courtroom and demand disclosure of whether the agency at one point thought about closing the investigation or demanded production of the facts on which the investigation was predicated or demanded to know what the investigating agents subjectively believed at different points in time about whether the defendant was telling the truth. Even if the defendant hadn't twice already pled guilty, Judge, the government would laugh at those demands. And I respectfully submit that this court, which has distinguished itself in a positive way, as perhaps the most demanding judge in the country when it comes to disclosures by the government, would deny those requests. The government's also manufactured a materiality standard just for Michael Flynn says in its motion that a statement is material if it's reasonably likely to influence the tribunal in making a determination required to be made, and it italicized those last four words, citing a 74-year-old case that's no longer good law. And in response to our brief, it says the prosecution was brought on the theory that Flynn's false statements had a material impact on the FBI's ongoing investigation. Those are not standards for materiality anywhere else. And I guarantee you, in every other courtroom in America where a defendant asked for that standard to be given to the jury, government will fight tooth and nail to keep it from happening. But that's the standard that they drag out from Michael Flynn's case. And Judge, I don't mean to suggest for a minute that these false statements don't all of the standards, even the government. That's not my point. My point is not that the defendant-friendly standards would actually make a difference in this case, but rather that the government's willingness to try to sell them here, when you know and I know that they'll oppose them elsewhere, says so much about what this motion is really about. The government says that the interviewers went to the White House with the nefarious, I covered this before, they went to the White House with the intention to help Michael Flynn, if he didn't remember his false statements, they were going to nudge him and they did nudge him. The uh, government previously told this court that Flynn's false statements went to the heart of fire hurricane, which was alone sufficient, alone sufficient to establish materiality. And then when he pled guilty, he admitted his lies materially impacted the FBI's investigation. There's no rational view of the law of materiality, pursuant to which Flynn's false statements can be reasonably described as immaterial. Let me turn to falsity briefly. As a fallback, the government says it can't even prove that Flynn lied. And judge, this is not an argument that can be taken seriously. First of all, it doesn't have to 
Bertrand he's pled guilty. And, you know, one of the questions I'm going to suggest if this court asks the government when it speaks again is just what it really means is that every time someone pleads guilty and then they come into court for sentencing and it looks like things might not go well and they ask for their plea back, the government's going to agree to it? I don't think so. That's not how the government works. And it's not how the law works. Worse than that is the government has painted itself into an impossible corner on this. Flynn repeatedly admitted he lied. He did it in his debriefings. He did it under oath before you. He did it under oath before Judge Contreras. He did it subject to penalty of perjury the night before he pled guilty before uh, Judge Contreras. He adopted the statement of reasons. Now he says, wait, those admissions weren't true. They were coerced. A threat to prosecute my son. But the government's position is he's lying about that. It denies that happened. So why can't it use his own admission? There's no answer in the government's papers. This is what happens. We point out, you scratch the surface a tiny bit, point out how completely and utterly hollow the government's ostensible reasons are, and they abandon them and find some others. There's no answer. And so there's no answer to the question whether under the terms of his cooperation agreement, they can use his own admissions. They say they can't prove his guilt if he goes to trial, but they can use his admissions. And we know that because we can read. Paragraph 11 of the cooperation agreement allows the government to use those guilty pleas, those statements that he made during his debriefings, whenever it wants, because Flynn breached the agreement by committing perjury, which even the government itself admits. In any case, forget the admissions, Judge. Flynn's guilt is plain. There's a reason he pled guilty and cooperated with the government, and it's because his guilt could hardly be easier to prove. We know what he said to Kislyak, and we know what he said to the FBI. He lied when he denied, or denied recalling, requests he personally made of the Russian ambassador. The government says it's going to be hard to prove because he lied uh, when he, it's going to be hard to prove he lied because he, quote, this is the government speaking, offered either equivocal or indirect responses or claimed not to remember the matter in question, close quote. That's false. And also told outright lies. Happy to, um, the court wishes. But let, let me just spend a moment because it places in such stark relief the pretext that this assertion actually is. Spend a moment on the Flynn's claimed failures of recollection during the interview. Here's an example. He was asked if he encouraged Kislyak not to escalate the situation in the wake of President Obama's sanctions and to keep the Russian responses reciprocal. Flynn responded, quote, I don't remember. The government says it would be hard to prove that was false. And Judge, this is the problem with this story, this blizzard of things the government and Ms. Powell says. Just think about that one dot for a second, that one data point. 
It would be hard to prove that he actually remembered. He was the national security advisor. He forgot within less than a month, having personally asked for a favor from the Russian ambassador during the transition period, a favor that sought to undermine the policy of the sitting president. And he forgot doing that, even though he had lied to the vice president-elect about that exact request less than two weeks earlier, and the incoming chief of staff and the incoming press secretary, all of whom themselves misled the American public by repeating lies publicly. Does the government really think it couldn't win that case? Of course it doesn't. And Judge, I want to say this, you know, this isn't easy for any of us, uneasy for me. It's our Department of Justice, too. But the sad fact is you have to conclude that a worry about proving Michael Flynn's guilt had literally nothing to do with why this motion was made. There's no other inference you can draw from these facts. So the government half-heartedly throws in some other lame arguments it says there are inconsistent FBI records concerning the interview, meaning, you know this, the agent's notes and the 302s, and there's nothing remotely unusual about there being things in the notes that are not in the 302 and vice versa. There's nothing unusual, as you well know, about statements being testified to at trial that are not in either the notes of the 302s. The government says that the FBI agents were not actually deceived by Flynn's false statements, even while conceding this was legally irrelevant. Nothing about the falsity of Flynn's statements is difficult to prove. Nothing's changed since the government itself said that to the court, said that the evidence was consistent and clear that the defendant made false multiple statements to the agents. The reasons stated in the original most were obviously protection that the government and Flynn have been scrambling ever since we filed our brief to find better ones. Uh, Judge, I have to bring up the issue of agent bias. Not because it's new, necessarily, although there's a new addition to it in the most recent filing to come over the transom in the courthouse. It's been lurking around the case for years since a couple of FBI agents were dismissed. It was disclosed years ago, and Flynn reaffirmed his guilty plea after it was disclosed, but it keeps coming up. And the government says unconvincingly in part of the briefing that agent bias would impair its ability to prove Flynn's guilt. And it surfaces again in this brand new submission that just arrived, where the interview of another agent, this William Barrett, says that people in the special counsel's office had to get Trump it's not clear to me, and maybe the government will illuminate this when it speaks, what role the government wants this to play in the court's mind, if agent bias to play in this motion. But I think the court will put it up on the table and poke it around a little bit with the government. And let me be clear, I have no objection to criminal defendants obtaining appropriate relief when they're subjected to bias by law enforcement. And make, make no mistake about it, if that's what the government is suggesting here, it's an astonishing bad case. In every other case involving allegations, but demonstrated 
irrefutable bias. Federal prosecutors not only don't seek to dismiss the case, they give the defendant's argument the back of the hand. In the instant Check the view of the agents means nothing, they'll say. Focus on the evidence, whether it objectively establishes guilt. Maybe if we put the agent on the stand, you can cross him or her, although they always fight that too and often win. But as long as the offending agents don't testify, bias on the part of the investigators is irrelevant. Judge is not an experienced defense lawyer in America. It hasn't run across bias on the part of law enforcement agents, not because there's any greater incidence of it in law enforcement. That's not my point. Police officers and agents are people just like the rest of us, and they aren't immune from the explicit and implicit biases that are baked into our society. But I ask you to ask the government on rebuttal whether if it wants you to grant this motion based in part on the political bias of agents and prosecutors, what about other cases in which defendants can demonstrate such bias, or even worse, invidious, unconstitutional bias? Those based on race or religion or ethnicity. Will you dismiss those cases as well, even if the defendant doesn't have friends in high places? Among the newest reasons the government has served up, it's intriguing too, it's referred to already today, is this impressive sounding claim that dismissal would be in the interest of justice. It talks about enforcement policies. And enforcement priorities and policy assessments without telling us what the policies are and what the assessments are. It says these policy assessments are quintessentially unreviewable, but doesn't, again, doesn't say what they are. And it turns out when you, to the extent there's any light shed on what the underlying facts are, they rely on the circumstances surrounding Flynn's interview which are exactly the same legally irrelevant facts it relies on for materiality and falsity. And judge, if, if you accept the government's argument that from the highest ranks of the Justice Department, we assure you we've done this in the interest of justice, so therefore you must grant this motion, you have become the rubber stamp the Supreme Court decided to eliminate when it rewrote the proposed Rule 48 that was submitted by the advisory committee and inserted the leave of court requirement. This, it hasn't ended. The government is, it keeps advancing reasons why you should dismiss. You've heard some new ones today. The, you have this new interview of Agent Barrett. Judge, that interview happened last week, months after the government made its motion to dismiss. And Agent Barrett believes that Flynn lied. And it, 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 opposing this motion, which I'm proud to do at the court's request, has become a game of, of whack-a-mole. The most bizarre process I have witnessed, government continues to unearth utterly inconsequential administrative and investigative tidbits it launders them through this weird investigation being conducted out of the Eastern District of Missouri, and then up they pop onto your docket as a supplemental reason why you should dismiss this case. It's sad. 
It's ridiculous and it's sad because it's our job all the two. The, um, let me, I'm subject to the court's questions, let me just say a couple of things and then I'll, I'll sit down. We agree that whenever the government moves to dismiss a pending criminal case, whether it's opposed or unopposed, it's entitled to substantial deference. We too take, take seriously the take care clause in Article 2, Section 3 of the Constitution and, this, and the substantial power it vests in the executive. The power not to prosecute at all, as I've mentioned, is absolute. But once a prosecution is commenced, once the government brings a criminal charge by indictment or information into your courtroom, the power to dismiss it is qualified. You're not only entitled, but you're obligated to demand the reasons and evaluate the reasons. And though you must presume them to be the real reasons, you're not required to act like you were born yesterday. The Supreme Court in 1941 put an end to those days where judges had to hold their noses and grant these motions and become inextricably bound up in conduct, which smacks of impropriety like the conduct that's happening in this case. There's a completely legit road to what the executive branch wants to accomplish here, one that won't erode the public's confidence in your branch, the third branch. They should take that road. Pardon them. Don't do it this way. Don't attack your own filings in this very case because the president wants Flynn off the hook. He doesn't want to use the pardon power to do it. There's no overstating how damaging it is to the court, to the judiciary of which this court is a part, and to the department itself. The department to create a brand new set of rules for Michael Flynn that will never apply to anyone else. And then to tell a federal judge to apply those rules and dismiss the case. This can't just happen in a nation committed to the rule of law. And Judge Sullivan, you should not allow that to happen here. Unless the court has any questions, I'll sit down. Mr. Policeman, thank you very much. And, and uh, I appreciate uh, your, your services in this case. Thank you. I'm going to Give, I'm going to afford Ms. Uh, Powell an opportunity. She's been very patient for the last um, couple of hours uh, to speak. I don't. She's not a moving party in this case on behalf of Mr. Flynn. I'm going to accept it's true that she joins in the government's motion uh, for all the reasons articulated by the government. Um, I have a few questions to ask her, and then I'll give her an opportunity to uh, briefly put anything on the record she wants to. Uh, but I do not want her to be uh, repetitious of, of, of what the government's already said. Um, I can't see you, uh, Ms. Powell. I, I, I assume you're still there. Are you still there? Yes, I'm here, Your Honor. Right. Okay. All right. That's great. I'm sorry you had to wait so long. Um, let me ask you this. Why, why did Mr. Flynn plead guilty twice under oath? Well, first of all, Your Honor, he had counsel that was hopelessly conflicted. They had a non-consentable conflict of interest and could not engage in effective assistance of counsel under that conflict. He was not advised of all the evidence accurately that even the government, what little bit it had disclosed. 
he was should have been recused then. The government knew it held text messages evidencing his relationship with Peter Strzok, the lead FBI agent on the case, that required his recusal within a few days later. And once a judge is recused under the D.C. Circuit's decision in Al-Nashiri, nothing he did thereafter can be given any credit or use. So everything that Judge Contreras did under Al-Nashiri has to be stricken and or is void. So there was never a valid guilty plea in the first place. When this court proceeded to sentencing on or to schedule a sentencing hearing on December 12th, which reminds me there had never been a sentencing. It did not commence. The court shifted instead to do a plea colloquy, an extended plea colloquy of which General Flynn was not informed before the proceeding. And his counsel, as the documents show that we have filed, coached him only to, if the court offered him an, offered him an opportunity to withdraw his plea, to say no to that, it would only be giving him rope to hang himself. He had not had the opportunity then to consult with independent counsel. It was some months later before that happened. As soon as he did, well, let, me, let, me just, let, me just, let me just stop you there. Uh, during the course of that hearing before me, um, I've been over backwards, as I always do, to be fair to everyone who comes before me. And uh, when the question came up about uh, his attorney's backpedaling from acceptance of responsibility or what appeared to be backpedaling, um, and that, that uh, provoked a discussion about, look, no one's forcing you to go through with this. If you want another attorney to discuss this, I'll appoint an attorney for you at no expense to you. And, and I also had, knowing that I was going to ask those questions, I also had available a conference room for him to speak with his then current attorneys about that. And I took a recess. Um, so there wasn't, there was an offer made by the court to appoint an outstanding lawyer to speak with him about going forward. And, and I think that his response to that after talking with his attorneys and after thinking about it, was that uh, he appreciated it, but he, he denied the opportunity to have independent counsel. So it wasn't as if he wasn't afforded an opportunity to speak with uh, someone else. Anyway, go ahead. Well, there was no independent counsel for him there at that time. And he was completely blindsided by the entire proceedings, as were his own counsel, who had told him only to say no if the court offered him any opportunity to withdraw his plea. They were still laboring under a non-consentable conflict of interest because they themselves had done the FARA filing and documents we have filed from their own files show that they knew there were problems with the FARA filing that were created by the government itself and its allegations and by their own their own files. That the statements came from an Eric Fox, the Eric Fox firm and by uh, from the accounting records not attributable to Mr. Flynn at all, but they were, they had the issue of being conflicted by their underlying work on the FARA filing. It was a choice of either, you know, we admit that we screwed up here or point out that this is wrong or, or Flynn goes ahead with the plea and they pushed him through with the plea. There, there's no dispute about that. It's, it's really cannot be contested. Plea wasn't valid. That was not a valid Rule 11 proceeding either because this court did not do a full Rule 11 colloquy. It didn't ask about coercion. It didn't elicit anything that would have shown that the government knew about the conflict of interest and had discussed it with defense counsel. So the court wasn't informed about the conflict and the court wasn't informed about the coercion of General Flynn by threats to his, indict his son and him the following day, giving them the Manafort treatment 
that was so notorious at the time and and the fact that the government was hiding that from the court because Mr. Van Brack wanted to avoid any Giglio obligation in the future. I mean, this court six years ago, when the Stevens case came about, was outraged over government misconduct and hiding Brady. The government here didn't even give us the right names of the agents who had written the notes for 18 months, yet the court has voiced no concern about that while it's concerned about a couple of dates on Strzok's text message, handwritten notes. There are Brady violations all over this case and rampant evidence of government misconduct in the words of the own agents who talk about partisan access to grind by people in the White House the day of or before the President Obama himself and Biden met with Sally Yates and James Comey when Comey told them the phone calls were legitimate that Flynn had made with Ambassador Kislyak because they had the transcript of them and knew there was no problem with them whatsoever, yet President Obama, in a politically corrupt investigation and prosecution, sent Comey out to make sure he put the right people on it and continued the investigation, despite the fact every lead showed that General Flynn was an extraordinary person. There was no derogatory information on him whatsoever from any source. They had investigated him for six months by then, put out national security letters on him and everything else. And by the way, that investigation didn't even ramp up until after the election, despite the fact the insurance tax they discussed in McCabe's office on August 15th led to the opening of the file against General Flynn the very next day and then sending Agent Pienka, the other agent who interviewed him, into a trusted presidential daily briefing to spy on General Flynn and uh, President-elect Trump or nominee Trump at the time to collect information on him and assess his mannerisms in the event they needed to interview him later, i.e. he made it into the White House. And that information was not disclosed to us until the Inspector General's report of December 2018, after this court had already issued its ruling on, on denying the Brady evidence. So extraordinary Brady evidence has come to light since this court's original Brady order what, what shows that let, 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 let me stop you for government misconduct. Let me stop you for a second. I want you to be very precise since the court's ruling. What is the very precise Brady material that's been produced since the court's ruling? Well, there's the report of the inspector general that shows that um, Mr. Pienka was sent into a presidential daily briefing to spy on President uh, nominee Trump and General Flynn to collect information on Flynn from that briefing that Christopher Wray himself found so egregious the FBI has completely stopped that policy and the Office of National Intelligence has said that they're not even going to allow the FBI to participate in any more briefings like that. It was such an egregious abuse of trust. We didn't know that. Um, we have more evidence now that Agent Pienka and Agent Strzok uh, knew General Flynn was telling the truth when he talked with them, that he was forthcoming. He told them about a meeting with the Russians that they did not even know he had. We know that Agent Barnett has said there was nothing but exculpatory information with respect to General Flynn. There was no derogatory information at all. We have the new national security letters list that shows how many NSLs were sent out on General Flynn even while he was in the White House none of which produced any derogatory information. They ran every kind of trap, wire, lead, anything you want to talk about. 
and there was no derogatory information on General Flynn. Yet because the meeting with Obama and Biden and Sally Yates and James Comey in the White House on January 5th, Comey went back out despite saying the calls were legitimate and instituted a politically corrupt procedure as evidenced by the agent's own words and notes now, they all knew it, to get General Flynn and thereby get President Trump. And the mantle that Mr. Gleason and this court have picked up since then, the mantle to continue a political prosecution of General Flynn that has no justification whatsoever in fact or law. It is a hideous abuse of power that continues to this very minute. And, and only in other countries have, have any of us ever seen this happen. Has any, has, have you or any other attorney on behalf of, of your of Mr. Flynn filed the First of all, let me just say, I was unaware of any reasons why Judge Contreras recused. I never, I've never had a conversation with him about recusal. I have no idea why he recused. And, and uh, I've never uh, wanted to discuss with him why he recused. Um, has anyone filed a motion to vacate the plea of guilty before him for the reasons you articulated today? It's one of the reasons we filed a motion to withdraw the plea. We've argued repeatedly that it was a void proceeding, that Contreras had to have been recused because of the struck page text messages that talk about meeting him at a cocktail party and discussing the case and him being on the FICA court and all of that. We provided those to the court as part of our request to withdraw the guilty plea, and I believe we even briefed it in our, our amicus or our uh, mandamus petition as one of the reasons the guilty plea is void. Both guilty, quote, guilty pleas, neither one of them is valid. The first, because Judge Contreras had to have been recused, and the second, because this court did not do a full plea colloquy, and General Flynn still was not represented by counsel who had could be dedicated to his interest. Well, he was, when he was he's before me, under the Sixth Amendment. When he was before me, he was under oath, and he, and, he, and he swore under oath that he was guilty because he wasn't guilty and asked for forgiveness. In what situations are you arguing that the court may review a Rule 48A motion, if at all? Incentive to Rule 48A motion, Your Honor, the court is required to grant. The government has given more than substantial reasons to withdraw it. Nixon says it's within their sole discretion to decide who, what, and when to prosecute. This court, for example, in its own decision in Pitts, recognized the dismissal has to be with prejudice. Otherwise, there is a potential for harassment against the defendant, and the fact that this court and Mr. Gleason would even consider waiting for a new attorney general or a new administration simply highlights the political nature of this continued prosecution. Uh, I'm not going to get into any discussion about Pitts. I offered that opinion, but it speaks for itself, and the facts were um, significantly different than, than the facts in this case, and they cried out for a dismissal with prejudice, and uh, and the government chose not to appeal. Um, to fail to dismiss this case with prejudice would trigger the same concerns of Rinaldi and Pitts, that the defendant be subjected to continued harassment that this moment would be by the court and Mr. Gleason, his special prosecutor, as opposed to the government, who has absolutely, clearly, and unequivocally said it won't prosecute the prosecution and not waste further resources on it. Well, I've, I've not appointed... Mr. Gleason, the special prosecutor, and, and don't intend to appoint him or anyone else as special prosecutor. He's appointed as amicus. And again, you know, if you want to argue that, uh, that uh, there's no basis, you can file something within a week or so. Um, you argue also that the court may not look, quote, in your words, behind the motives or into the reasoning of the executive, end quote. 
how then is the court to determine um, in any motives? Um, what's the extent of what the court can can uh, can look at? It can look at the face of the pleadings by the government, the at least 80 or more pages of documents. I think we're up to about 150 pages of new evidence now that shows that the investigation itself was the corruption, that it was part of the essential coup to take out President Trump. And the goal was to get Flynn first and then get Trump. That's evident from Mr. Barnett's 302, as well as the text messages and link messages of many of the agents. All right. All right. Is there anything else you want to put on the record? You, I, I don't have any other questions to ask you. Anything, any other points you wish to make that are not repetitive of what the government uh, has already made? We have, we have provided the new information to the court as it was given to us by the government. This court's own decision in Pitts requires it to be dismissed with prejudice. In closing, I would just say that Mr. Gleason continues to be lost down the rabbit hole on the other side of the looking glass where nothing would be what it is because everything would be what it isn't. And contrary-wise, what is, it wouldn't be. And what it wouldn't be, it would. It's all backwards. It's upside down. In a different scenario, he himself wrote, the prosecutor can do justice by the simple act of going back to the court and agreeing that justice should be done. The importance of the Department of Justice being able to self-correct to maintain its own reputation and to restore faith of the public in the Department of Justice itself is hugely important. As Mr. Gleason wrote, then doing justice can be much harder. It takes time and involves work, including careful consideration of the circumstances of particular crimes, defendants, and victims, and often the relevant events that occurred in the distant past. It requires a willingness to make hard decisions, including some that will be criticized. That is exactly what Attorney General Barr has done here. The president's tweets are a red herring, as is the letter from Peter Strzok's lawyer, all of which are extrajudicial and should not be considered by this court at all. In the case in which Mr. Gleason discussed, he said his assistant U.S. attorney had to retrieve and examine an old case file. He requested an adjournment so his office could do the extremely important work of re reviewing it. The effort that went into deciding whether to agree to vacate who counts against the defendant could have been devoted to other cases. This is a significant case and not just for the defendant. It demonstrates the difference between a Department of Prosecution and a Department of Justice. It shows how the Department of Justice, as the government's representative in every federal case, has the power to walk into courtrooms and ask judges to remedy injustices. This is the most egregious injustice I have seen in my 30-plus years of practice and the government is imperative that it remember it that it rectify it and that this court dismissed this case with prejudice in standard all right thank you i want to extend the courtesy to mr cole um and and his uh and his partner law partner mr cole any additional comments you wish to make in the record thank you thank you uh, mr bupan uh, yes. I'll, I'll start um so uh, Judge Gleason said a lot uh, during his uh, argument, but I don't think he really addressed the key points we made and what little he did say about those key points proves our point. I'm going to try to make three brief points. Okay, and, and, and when doing so, please address the points you raised about political bias and the interest of justice as well. I will definitely do that, Your Honor. So the first point is, point during his argument, did he address 
the quotes from the Nixon decision and the Fokker decision that I read to you during our opening. I'll read them again because they're so important. The quote from Nixon is that the executive branch has, quote, the exclusive authority and the absolute discretion whether to prosecute a case. It doesn't say almost absolute discretion unless fill in the blank of Justice Gleason's standard. It doesn't say absolute discretion whether to initiate charges, but once you've initiated the charges, you lose your discretion. It says the absolute discretion whether to prosecute a case. If there was any ambiguity about that, there's the quote from Fokker, which I also read you, which Judge Gleason also didn't address. Again, that quote says, the leave of court authority of Rule 48 gives no power to a district court to deny based on a disagreement, not even a disagreement for all of the reasons that Gleason said. Now, Judge Gleason, to be fair, on this quote, he did suggest in passing, without any explanation, that that language was dicta. But he gave no explanation for why it's dicta when it is the necessary reasoning of the D.C. Circuit's opinion in Fokker. And he certainly didn't explain how that language could be dicta, but the language in Amidown is not dicta because, after all, in Fokker, this reasoning supported what the court did, which was reverse the decision below. In Amidown, the language he cites is irrelevant to what the court did, which was, again, to reverse the district court below. So we think that... So let me ask you this. Essentially, what the government is saying is that leave of, leave of court is required. The court, and I, I assume you would concede the court can do what it's doing now, have a hearing, ask some questions. But even asking a few questions or three hours worth of questions, the court nevertheless has to dismiss. That, that's that's no, the answer, right? No, Your Honor. Uh, so, of course, in a case where the defendant opposes the court would have a role to play to make sure no, that there no, is talking about, harassment. I'm talking about a case like yes. this one where the, where the defendant right. agrees with the government. Right. And so in a case where the defendant agrees with the government, we do think there is a role to play, but there's a very narrow role to play. Right, where, where, does this, where does this start and end? I need to know that. Where does this start and end? Where it starts and where it ends is to ensure that it is the authoritative position of the executive branch. So it is not like examples Judge Gleason historically identified where you've got an AUSA out in Montana doing something that the main Justice Department would not have authorized. You're not where you have some AUSA who's taking a bribe on the side that if the Attorney General found out about it, he would put an end to it. But that is the sum and substance of the role. The only way to reconcile the language of Rule 48 with the quotes that I just read you from Nixon and Fokker is to say that as long as it is the authoritative position of the executive branch, the attorney general has made an authoritative determination, then that is the end of the matter, and that is the circumstance in which you find yourself here. So, so essentially, the court is relegated to ask those two, to have a hearing and ask those two questions and rule. In a, yeah, in a case such as this, we, we do think that that is correct, Your Honor. We think that is what both Nixon and Fokker show. But let me turn to my second point. If you don't agree with that, Your Honor, and so Judge Gleason, uh, one of his two grounds which he articulates is you could set it aside if it's based on favoritism. And to show that it was based on favoritism, he went through a laundry list of comments by the president. Set aside the point I made earlier that, you know, having consulted with the attorney general, I've been authorized to represent to you that none of that had any effect on the attorney general's decision. Just focus on what Judge Gleason actually read to you in that laundry list. I urge you to go back at the transcript and read the quotes he read. Not once did he read something from the president that said, 
you should dismiss the suit because Michael Flynn is my friend. I want the suit dismissed. Instead, what he said again and again, and Judge Gleason may disagree with it, but what the president said again and again is he thought that this was a witch hunt and he thought that maybe uh, that General Flynn didn't even say anything false. Now, that is not favoritism. What if it was true? I know Judge Gleason doesn't think it's true, but let's say the president was right, that it is a witch hunt and General Flynn didn't think it was false. Is Judge Gleason really suggesting that the Department of Justice should plow ahead anyway and prosecute General Flynn, even if it were a witch hunt and even if it were false? That cannot possibly be correct. So the evidence that he is identifying to try to show that there's favoritism just doesn't prove. What it does show, and this gets to his next standard, he thinks it's wrong. He thinks the president is just wrong about this, that there is no witch hunt, and that it was clearly false. And I'll say two points about that, Your Honor. The first is that is exactly the type of scrutinizing and second-guessing that Fokker clearly takes off the table. What the historical facts are here, whether the executive branch has properly determined that there are serious problems with this prosecution, is exactly what Fokker says you cannot do. But I'm, we're happy to talk about the facts. So let me just give you two facts on the two exact things that Judge Gleason himself emphasized on the question about whether this is a witch hunt. Here's one of the new pieces of evidence that was not before your honor at the time of the Brady ruling. And it's a piece of evidence that Judge Gleason conspicuously failed to address at any point during his remarks. It is the, it's the notes from the FBI chief of counterintelligence. The FBI chief of counterintelligence wrote down in contemporaneous notes, what is the goal of this interview? Is the goal to get truth or admissions or is it to get him to lie so we can prosecute him or get him fired? It is astonishing to me that Judge Gleason would suggest that in the face of evidence like that, the Department of Justice is required to plow ahead and prosecute an individual when the FBI counterintelligence chief himself is raising questions about whether the only point of this interview is to get the national security, incoming national security advisor fired. The second point uh, was that the president made that Judge Gleason scoffed at is whether uh, General Flynn knowingly lied. Well, here are the quotes from the FBI agents right when they left the interview. This is when they were debriefing the Department of Justice and the FBI after the interview. Their contemporaneous impression was that Flynn was not lying and or did not think he was lying. Let that sink in. Judge Gleason thinks it's so obvious he's lying. Of course he's lying. The FBI agents who interviewed him at the time didn't think that he thought he was lying. And that shouldn't be surprising to anyone because, of course, as we pointed out in the motion to dismiss, General Flynn, before the interview, told McCabe he assumed that the FBI knew every word of his communications. It would be astonishing for General Flynn, assuming that the FBI knew every word of the communications, to then walk into an FBI interview room or have them walk into his office and lie to them knowingly, despite knowing that they, he knew every word they had. It made far more sense that 
He just didn't remember the precise details that he was asked about. And that is confirmed by yet more new evidence that has come in, as uh, Mr. Cole referenced earlier. The SCO agents, when they have been briefing the uh, main justice, they themselves recognize that General Flynn has a, quote, bad memory. So you could have Judge Gleason's theory, which is that General Flynn, that the FBI knew every word he had said, nevertheless decided for some inexplicable reason to lie to them and did it so well that when the FBI agents walked out, they didn't think that he was lying or thought he was lying. Or you can think that maybe he just didn't remember. And maybe he pled guilty for many reasons that lots of people get plead guilty, even though they didn't actually knowingly lie. But at a minimum, these sort of facts and all the other facts we've talked about this morning show that there's not clear evidence of pretext. This is exactly the sort of case where this court should defer to the executive branch's judgment that this is a case does not warrant prosecution. And I believe Mr. Cole has a couple of additional points along those lines. All right, thank you. <laughs> yes, Your Honor, thank you. Um, Mr. Gleason suggests that we're just giving the court a bunch of opaque reasons and uh, trying to invoke interest, interest of justice. In reality, <clears throat> as my colleague, Mr. Mupon just cited, we're giving very specific reasons that any prosecutor would find extremely troubling and be unwilling to proceed. In addition, I'd point out, uh, as I said, if three different Office of Inspector General investigations have found that your only witnesses in this case were either lying under oath, misleading a court, or acting with political motivation, or their actions suggested they acted with political motivation, how can you expect this to go forward? That's a reason. Uh, and then, of course, the director's own comment that uh, when asked under oath himself whether he thought Flynn was lying, he said it's a close question. You can make the argument. Um, you know, we don't prosecute people simply because you can make an argument they're guilty. We as prosecutors are entitled to know and, set, and believe with confidence that they're actually guilty. The last thing I'd just point out, Your Honor, is, I mean, with, with these sorts of facts where the agents themselves aren't even absolutely convinced that he's guilty, um, career prosecutors just wouldn't bring charges. I can tell you, career prosecutors looking at these facts would never have filed the charges in this case. And it's interesting because when the agents got done interviewing Mr. Flynn, they came over to the Department of Justice for meetings and there was discussions about what Flynn said, didn't say. And of course, as I mentioned before, there was a discussion and we're learning this all from executive level notes that we've since reviewed, but uh, there was discussion about whether to do a re-interview. But one note, a couple of notations were pretty telling. On January 25th, they, Deputy Assistant Attorney General at Maine Justice uh, asked the agents, is his recollection accurate since we didn't confirm or correct it? That's how queer people were looking at this. You never actually uh, followed up questions. You didn't clarify. Uh, he, didn't, he, was, he gave wrong and false information, but was it willful? And uh, the FBI declined to go back and do an interview. Um, subsequent notes show that as he needed to drill down on Mr. Flynn, uh, 
The FBI told DOJ they did not believe he was acting as an agent in Russia and did not find any evidence of collusion with respect to his report. So we know when I say that queer prosecutors would not have filed this charge in the first instance, um, we know that's true because they didn't file charges in this case, not in January, not in February, not in March, uh, not until the special, special counsel's office picked this case up. So when you couple that with investigator or agent Barnett's uh, expressed concerns about what may have been motivating uh, at least some of the uh, personnel at the special counsel's office, I, I think it is something that uh, we are entitled, you know, we're not asking you to dismiss for that reason. We're saying we want to dismiss for that reason. We move to dismiss. And we're uh, obviously uh, believe that we're entitled to leave and leave of court for that. I mean, if if the if, among other things, if the accusations by um, Agent Barnett uh, that this that the charges filed in this case were in some way politically motivated um, are a proper basis for us to be concerned, for I to have concerns about those things, moving to dismiss. Okay. Now, if we're, if we're concerned about politics at the front end, moving to this now is not political. It's a course correction. We're just trying to get the criminal system back to where it uh, should have been all along. We do ask your honor to grant this motion today and to do so with dispatch as recommended by the Court of Appeals here. Thank right. you, honor. All right. All right. Thank you. I, I want to revisit one point about the Lowry convictions. I think uh, earlier this afternoon, I asked uh, government counsel whether or not uh, there was any reported um, decisions, either by a circuit court or district court anywhere, that are directly on point with this case. Uh, in other words, analogous. Um, and that's my recollection, Mr. Cole referred to uh, Lowry. Lowry, though, and I've thought about this over the last recess, the Lowry case was problematic for a host of reasons. I mean, principally because, <laughs> principally because Lowry was the principal investigating FBI agent, I believe. My memory serves me correctly, and uh, he had uh, there were all sorts of problems with the FBI um, crime lab. Um, there were no security. There was no security there. There were instances in which Lowry had uh, checked out uh, contraband drug seized from defendants who were being prosecuted in um, in our courts. Um, and I mean, there were there were you know, there were there was a host of reasons why it was compelling for those cases to be dismissed with prejudice. But I'm, I'm, I just don't see where uh, those cases rise to the level, well, this case rises to the level of what happened in Lowry, though. So I just have to ask the question again, are you aware of any other opinions other than Lowry? Um, I mean, maybe I missed something in your argument, but I don't see where Lowry uh, should in and of itself dictate uh, the decision this court uh, reaches. No, Your, Your Honor, I'm not aware of any other case where uh, FBI counterintelligence chief said it's the point of this interview that get him to lie so we get him fired. Those cases just don't get brought in the first instance. Uh, but I feel quite confident if that had come up in another case, you would have a decision saying, of course, to dismiss in those circumstances. This is the Department of Justice, not the Department of Prosecution. All right. Um, and Mr. Gleason, in fairness, I mean, they were, they were, you know, the government counsel professionally and appropriately responded to your argument. Do you have anything in a few minutes to, to, to respond, counsel? Sure, just very briefly, Judge. 
I'll do the lawyering here. Um, as for the Nixon case, we agree, by the way, that the decision whether to prosecute is absolute. The decision to withdraw a prosecution once it's been brought is qualified. Of course, it was Pickford and Fokker. The case involved the Speedy Trial Act. And whether it was error not to uh, a speedy trial extension in a CPA. It was not about 48, uh, Rule 48A. And in fact, Amadown was. Amadown was about whether an agreement to dismiss the top town in a murder case should be approved under Rule 48A. So the government lawyers just have their law wrong. So a couple of other, not random, but a couple of points that are certainly responding to. Um, Barnett. He thought, I'm sorry. Uh, excuse me. Uh, to repeat that, we have difficulty hearing you, Mr. Gleason. Okay. Barnett, am I doing any better now? Um, yes, Mr. Gleason. Okay. The agent that they talked about that they interviewed last week said he thought Clinton was the. I want to focus, Judge, on just a couple of things before I sit down. One is, I, I hate to say, I, don't, I mean this in the kindest possible way. It's kind of like bad defense lawyer. This notion that the FBI agents talked about whether they could get men to commit perjury. First of all, they decided not to do it because they reminded him of his own words to Kislev. But that, this notion that they're shocked, shocked, I tell you that an FBI agent would think about uh, inducing someone to purge. Well, you know, where have they been? That's, you know, you look under the hood. That's what they do. But what I really want to focus on, I want to focus on the rules that they've articulated for Michael Flynn that don't apply anywhere else. I didn't hear an answer to the, to the question whether the next time there's political bias, in a case, they're going to dismiss for racial bias or religious bias. I got a litigation right now, overt, religious animus. And the prosecutor says, no, that's completely irrelevant unless we put that person on the stand. So that principle applies only to Michael Flynn. But it's, I want to know, Judge, the next time with the false statements case, and the defendant says, I would like to know whether any of the agents in the case at any point had some doubt about whether I'm guilty, because then they're going to dismiss the case against me. You know that's not going to happen. That's never a relevant factor in a false statement case. But it is for Michael Smith. He did that. Uh, one other point before I mention this uh, response to this witch hunt thing. Um, if, if you deny this motion, you'll deny the motion to withdraw the plea and complete the sentence. But there's an unspoken premise that I'm not sure is correct that came up earlier in today's proceedings. The government hasn't said that if you deny this motion to dismiss, it will not continue to prosecute the case. And where would it get off doing that? They've asked this court for relief. And then if you say no, they're packing up and going home. 
They haven't said that yet. And I would be astonished if that's the case. It would be a, um, an act of enormous disrespect for this court, to this court. And lastly, you know, the, the whole witch hunt thing proves my case. The, the reason this motion to dismiss has been brought has nothing to do with materiality. Every single thing these people, these prosecutors said was flatly contradicted by the prosecutors in this very case. And to the extent they're not here to respond to it now, I have. This, the dismissal, the attempt to dismiss this case has nothing to do with materiality. It has nothing to do with being able to prove falsity. A first-year prosecutor one day out of law school can do this case. It has everything to do with the president's belief that this is some kind of witch hunt and the fact that he brought pressure on the Justice Department and an attorney general who has said publicly that the pressure that's brought on the Justice Department by the president and his tweets and his communications makes it very difficult for the Justice Department to get the trust of the courts. And that's exactly what's happening here. And it's why you should deny this motion. All right. Thank you all. All right. It's been a very interesting and very informative long day. Um, I'm mindful of of the instructions given by the uh, unbound court when the case was remanded. Uh, I'll take the case under advisement. Uh, the, the record is voluminous, and I will um, proceed with uh, dispatch. Thank you. Have a nice day. Thank you. Uh, if I need you, um, further, I've talked about additional submissions within a week. I'll spell that out in a minute order. Uh, we've spent uh, a lot of time today. I'm not going to keep you uh, any longer. Let me just turn my attention to, to my attorneys just for a second. Um, all right, seconds up. All right, the hearing is concluded. Thank you all. Mr. Bernal, uh, you've been very quiet. How are you? I'm good, Your Honor. Thank you very much. All right. We need an urgent transcript. I'm, I'm sorry? We need an urgent transcript. Hey, of talk, to, talk to the talk to the court reporter. That's always. I, I don't get involved in that. That's a business transaction. I'm not going to get involved in that. So, thank you all. Have a nice evening. Bye bye. Be safe. Okay. Damn, that was weak. That was horrible. <laughs> that was terrible, actually. So that's the end of the hearing. We got absolutely nowhere. We're right where we were, you know, before the hearing. So here's where we wait again. All they do is buy time again, again, and again. So now I just wanted to say, I wanted to restart what Grinnell said, very important with everything that just happened while we were watching the hearing with the declassification that President Trump requested about. It was a little bit less than two weeks ago and we got the debate coming. So I'll be back on um, in regards to that. Uh, some footage from over at the debate. We're going to be live streaming it the whole nine yards. It's going to be fun. We're going to have a big party. I'm going to have Millie here with me, too. So it's going to be tons of fun. I'm actually going to 
um, play this and then uh, head off and make some brownies. Um, you know, chocolate, sugar keeps it going, right? So let's uh, play this clip again because this is important of what Grinnell had said. This former acting director of national intelligence, he's former ambassador Rick Grinnell. It's great to see you back on, Rick. Good to see you. You know, Senator Lindsey Graham said more, quote, damning. It's good to see you. More, quote, damning government documents will soon be declassified in the FBI's botched Trump Russia probe, maybe the Flynn probe. What's the next shoe to drop? Such a good question, Elizabeth. Uh, you know, I'm not sure exactly what comes next, but there's plenty there. There's There are many reports, many letters, uh, many pieces of information, which really just point to uh, the very early days of how this investigation was developed. The many warning signs were ignored. And I think that's where many people have trouble is that if we would have been able to see the full package of the information, um, instead of having it uh, really edited down and, and pushed into a direction that the head of the FBI clearly wanted it to go in, uh, I think most people would have come to the same conclusion that Russian propaganda from the beginning had infiltrated into the Steele dossier. And so uh, the warning signs were there and now we're only seeing them later on. We've got to fix this problem. We've got to make sure that government isn't weaponized. And then we see, you know, just yesterday, uh, again now, the president's individual taxes are released. And this is yet another example of how bureaucrats inside Washington can weaponize government against the people that they don't like. It's very scary for every single person. Yeah. If one of your enemies starts working inside the government, they're going to use the tools of government against you and there's nothing you can do about it. This has got to get cleaned up. You know, Senator Chuck Schumer, remember in early January 2017, said the intelligence community can get you every which way from Sunday. You know, they act like accusations are tantamount to a conviction. That's a feel of what went on, that the Obama administration used the FBI and intelligence forces against an opposition campaign based on Russian disinformation financed by partially, mostly largely financed by the DNC and the Hillary Clinton campaign, and that the FBI and investigated a Russian spy who was a source for the anti-Trump Steele dossier. I mean, I don't think anybody could have written this. This is, uh, you know, fact is stranger than fiction. Well, let's also remember that uh, bureaucrats in Washington don't have the power to just launch into many of these uh, investigations, especially investigations that take a long time, unless their superiors know about it and approve it, or their superiors knowingly look the other way. And I think that's what we got to get to the bottom of. There's no question that there were recommendations to drop this Michael Flynn case. And then there was a meeting at the White House that Joe Biden attended and Susan Rice and others. And somehow after that meeting, there seemed to be a new vigor to go after uh, Flynn and others. And so I, I think it's pretty clear that the evidence shows that higher ups became very political 
in trying to go after the Trump team. And, and let's be very honest, there's a big cry now about a peaceful transition of power from the media elites and from the left saying, once again, they're sure that their candidate is going to win. And so they want to know, are we going to have a peaceful transition of power? Let me just be very clear. Donald Trump won in 2016 and there was not a peaceful transition of power. The meetings and the schedules show that the intensity against Donald Trump and his team got more intense got hotter as soon as there was uh, an election uh, finish and we knew who was moving into the White House. Yeah. And at that point in time, should the FBI have stopped their Trump-Russia probe and have should they have stopped the Flynn probe? Because we've got newly revealed FBI text messages in and around the time of that January 5th, 2017 Obama briefing with Obama, Susan Rice, Joe Biden. Uh, FBI text messages behind the scenes saying it was a madhouse. Officials are scrambling, groping for information to support their theories that they all went and bought personal professional liability insurance, fearing they could be sued over the misconduct going on behind the scenes at the FBI. We have former FBI official, uh, you know, w uh, William Barrett saying there was an attitude, just get Trump, that this was, a, you know, a big, powerful investigation that they wanted to be in on to get a big scalp to, you know, stick to the wall. Uh, and, you know, that this was uh, be, a, you know, a feather in their cap to do something like this when they weren't letting the facts and the evidence take them where take them to the conclusion. Instead, they had a theory and they were trying to shoehorn the facts into their theory. So do you think they should have stopped the Trump Russia probe, stopped the Flynn probe at that moment in December 2016? Yes, the people who were looking at the information in full recommended that they stop it. This should have been stopped. And let me also be very clear. The FBI is not the only agency that had red flags and that had individuals stepping forward to say, this is baloney. And those other agencies should come forward and declassify the documents that they are hell-bent on not releasing. And I don't wanna go any further, but I'm getting to the point where I'm getting really impatient with those individual agencies that know exactly what I'm talking about, that know exactly what documents they need to release. They've been called upon to do it and they're playing games. This is not good for transparency. Are these transparency. intelligence agencies? Transparent yes. Transparency is okay. not political. I don't care if it's a week before the election, the week after the election, or a year before the election. We shouldn't be thinking about election time. We should be thinking about transparency. And this is a system inside Washington that knows how to protect its own and knows how to go after people who raise their voice. I, I, I think that it's very important for people to understand right now, we need to have an outsider continuing to push this system in Washington because we see every day how they are weaponizing government against their political enemies. This is crazy. This is how governments fall it's, and end. And, and we cannot have this. Yeah. We need to have people understand it's the serious. outsiders need to change this place. It's a very serious situation. Final, final, final question. Will the documents and the, uh, that you want these intelligence agencies to release, will it show 
FBI or intelligence officials perjuring themselves before the FISA court because it seems like the FISA court was not aware about the information behind the Steele dossier and, you know, the alleged Russian spy feeding disinformation into the FBI three via that Steele dossier. Will it point to perjury before the FISA court? Look, I'm not going to play the Washington game of leaking partial classified information to, to have some sort of a win. What I'm calling for is transparency. I'm calling for uh, all of the reports that have been pushed aside and classified to tell uh, to make sure that the whole truth doesn't come out. Those documents need to come out. The public can handle it. This is not giving away sources and methods. There may be some context that some of these agencies want to share. I'm not here to say that everything is a slam dunk. It's all about nuance and context, but more information, the better. And we do have some documents that tell okay. a deeper story. Oh, Rick Rennell. Okay, we'll be staying on it. We have been covering this for some time now as best we can. And thanks to your help. We appreciate you coming on, Rick Rennell. Thanks for your insights and perspective. Come back soon. Right, guys. So I'm going to end this uh, feed with this uh, brief court session that was like five hours. I just wanted to say, see how she was trying to throw cover for the FISA court? Bullshit. They knew. They definitely knew the first warrant that Judge Collier signed. She freaking knew because she told them off for using over collection data to create what they created, the whole false facade. And now everyone's saying it was Hillary's like, we all know Brennan was all over the end. Oh, come on. Love Rick Grinnell. And he's right. We're not going to do the whole leaking story. So on that note, guys, I'm going to play a little tune uh, while we're... Um, uh, uh, while I'm shutting this down, I appreciate you guys. Uh, you know what Flynn is going through. I've seen you think that's crazy. That's the same way I felt when I was in court. I was looking at the judge like, all right, man, he's got no victim, no money loss, no crime, no nothing. I'm in civil court. Can this stop now? Because he's asking questions that are irrelevant. And the judge just let it happen. I'm like, what? what? Is this America or am I in Venezuela? But, you know, this happens all the time. You guys just don't see it. And like Rick Grinnell said, this is what the government does when it goes after its political enemies. It weaponizes their offices. On that note, uh, God bless everyone. I will see you later. Me, I don't want to set the world on fire. I just want to start. Earthly